You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Founders Brewing Company has found a way to make an IPA you can enjoy anytime that's perfect for any occasion with their all-day IPA. At 4.7 ABV, you can still taste the hops, of course, but it's the complex array of malts and grains that make all-day IPA a beer that will grab your attention. That full flavor and low ABV is what continues to make it a staple in my fridge. Look for Founders in your favorite beer store or check out their full line of beer at foundersbrewing.com. Founders Brewing Company, born and brewed in Michigan since 1997. At Huntington, we've been asking ourselves, is it possible to lend money at zero interest? And it totally is. Introducing Standby Cash. When you need extra cash, you can qualify for between $100 and $1,000 at Huntington. And it's free when you auto pay us back across three months. Why would a bank do that? Just to look out for people. That's how we reinvent banking. Huntington, welcome. Without automatic payments, 12% APR. Eligibility requirements apply. Amount available is based on customer eligibility. Learn more at Huntington.com slash standby cash. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. tonight. I'll hold your seat till you get there. After you get there, you're on your own. Hello? Hello, yes? No, he's not in yet. All right, well, goodbye. That was for you again. I wonder whatever became of me. I should have been back here a long time ago. They got drunk, we got drunk, all got Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. I have an appointment to insult Ambassador Trentino, and I don't want to keep him waiting. Also with us this week is Mr. John Cross. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say, you cover a lot of ground yourself. You better beat it. I hear they're going to tear you down and put up an office building where you're standing. You can leave in a taxi. If you can't get a taxi, you can leave in a huff. If that's too soon, you can leave in a minute and a half. You know, you haven't stopped talking since I came here. You must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. This week, we're looking at the 1933 film from Leo McCary starring the four Marx Brothers, Duck Soup. A send-up of politics and warmongering, Duck Soup is an anarchic collection of psych gags, wordplay, and surrealism. I don't know if there's much to spoil on this episode, but we'll be talking about the whole darn film, so if you don't want to know how it ends, turn off the show, go get a copy, and wonder to yourself why you've never seen Duck Soup. Then come on back and enjoy the show. Rob, when was the first time you saw Duck Soup, and what did you think? Well, it's kind of hard for me to remember exactly when. Uh, it's one of those things that's always in the ether. You know, you see bits of it here and there. You see references to it here and there, uh, especially if you're a Woody Allen fan like I am. But I'd have to say it was probably maybe sometime in high school. And I don't even know, uh, like I said, it 
it just seems like it's always been around me. So it's it, it's hard to remember the exact time. But in terms of its uh, impact on me, I think it is um, a brilliant comedy. It still holds up, and uh, it's amazing considering it's uh, over eighty years old. So it's. It's got a lot to offer, and I still think it makes great points about stupidity and uh, war and nationalism and all the things that we don't deal with today, which is amazing. Yeah, all of those problems have been solved, yes. which is fantastic. Yeah, exactly. How about you, John? When did you first see it, and what did you think? The most influential person uh, probably in my early life of coming across uh, comedy, certainly older comedy, uh, was my uh, friend John Wallace and his family. Uh, his mom had a sort of VHS collection that had all the Woody Allen stuff, like you were saying, Rob. She was a big Woody Allen fan, so we saw a lot of that. But Laurel and Hardy and the Marx Brothers were sort of both big black and white uh, comedian films that we watched at the time. And so I must have seen this probably around 92, 93 when I was hanging out of their house one weekend, as I usually did. We usually watched a mixture of comedy films and hammer horrors. That's kind of what, what we were doing at the time. Uh, yeah, what we would have watched this along with several other Marx Brothers and Laurel Hardy movies um, back at that time. And I remember just, for me, it was always the one-liners. You know, it's, 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 um, I had seen Love and Death, Woody Allen's Love and Death, which is sort of very comparable um, at, at around about the same time. And I was just in love with the dialogue. I was in love with the one-liners. I was in love with the surreal elements. I'm a huge Monty Python fan, so making non-sequitur leaps in comedy doesn't bother me. If it goes left and then right and then up and then down, it doesn't that I can follow that. And so I, I just remember marveling at it. I'm not sure that I was aware necessarily of any of the um, social commentary or political commentary of the film at the time. I just loved like the guy in the funny glasses with the painted on mustache cracking wise, really. That was that was my favorite thing. And then probably the, the physical comedy second. Can we talk about that real quick? Just Groucho's look. It looks more like electrical tape than anything else. <laughs> the yeah. DVD copy that I have, it looks like he cut a piece, a couple of pieces of electrical tape to make a mustache and eyebrows. I think that in this particular film, it's um, it's just makeup. It's just black makeup, or you know, it, it looks like boot polish, like it's kind of shiny. Um, so I, I I don't know, but I think yeah, I think it's just sort of makeup. It obviously wasn't a real mustache. And it's just, it, I don't know, it, it, it's kind of ridiculous. I think that's one of the things that um, when we get into it, it, it is so ridiculous. And I think the absurdity at times kind of covers up a lot of the thematic elements. I mean, there's a lot of theme and ideas in here. There's a lot of good satire. And I think in a lot of ways it works like a lot of great comedy does, and or a lot of great satire at least, where there's those that can come in and enjoy just the, you know, the big broad laughs, and then there's those that can look at it and go, wow, they're making some really good points here. It's funny because the Marx Brothers. I'm sure it was the same for me as it was for you guys, but I knew of the Marx Brothers way before I ever saw any of their stuff. I mean, growing up with Warner Brothers cartoons, growing up watching MASH, I mean, Alan Alda used to do a, a Groucho Marx impersonation. Bugs Bunny would do Groucho impersonations. There were send-ups of all the Marx Brothers in the Warner Brothers cartoons. So it was like they were these cultural icons growing up without even ever seeing the movie. Uh, any of their movies, I should say. And then as far as their movies being around, I mean, 
I remember enjoying them on some levels when I was a, a much smaller kid, but it wasn't until I probably hit about 18 or so where it finally clicked with me. And I finally said, oh, now I get it. Now I'm getting these jokes. And I think having that diet of the uh, Monty Python in high school and those kind of things really helped prepare me for when I finally sat down and watched some of the Marx Brothers films and said, okay, now I get it. Now I understand what's going on. The wordplay, the surrealism, just the, the, the mix of the comedy. And that's one of the things about Duck Soup that I like so much is that there's so many, to your point, Rob, there's so many levels of stuff. There's physical comedy there's you know just old school how roach type uh visual gags there's some sequences that are played um, there's at least two that i can think of right off the top of my head without any sort of dialogue or really even that many sound effects so it's just amazing that it can have that and then these rapid fire exchanges of wordplay and then just bizarre turns of, of comedy that they don't necessarily make any sense, but it, it works all the same. It, you just throw it all into a pot and something beautiful comes out of it. It's it's definitely that that I think that drew it drew it to me, just the eclectic nature of the film. Um, because, you know, I, I think back as well, like the Warner Brothers cartoons, that's a great comparison as well. I mean, I, I watched those growing up. And so when I think about that and I think about Monty Python, and obviously in, in England we had Blackadder and Fry and Laurie. Fry and Laurie have become bigger now over here thanks to House and various other things. Um, but they, and then I think of the Marx Brothers, Woody Allen especially, and even even some of the the Bob Hope road mo- road movies. We didn't watch them as much, but they definitely have that kind of um, quick fire thing as well, and and a bit later sort of Albert Brooks and things. But just just when I think of the combination of all those things, uh, kind of being plowed into my brain from about the age of five to fifteen, <laughs> it's it it's sort of. It's both wonderful, but it's also kind of uh, overwhelming, but it definitely informs uh, who I like to be now. (laughs) I'm a Python fan, as you know. We've talked about that before, and we've done Python on the show. You can go listen to the uh, Life of Brian episode. But I think probably the first time that I remember sort of a Groucho impression was Marty Feldman in Young Frankenstein. And I was like, what is he doing? And then, like, after I saw Groucho, I go, ah, okay, now I understand what he's doing in that little that little bit about, uh, will you help me with the bags? Certainly. You take the blonde and I'll take the one in the tithing. I remember, definitely, I, I grew up watching a lot of I Love Lucy. And so I actually saw the mirror gag done on I Love Lucy well before I saw it in Duck Soup, which was kind of funny that I happened to kind of come across it backwards that way and again you know just seeing these these characters i mean chico harpo and groucho were just these bizarre like cultural touchstones of these comic icons and i had no idea what they were what they meant a lot of times and i had no idea why why the guy with the blonde wig doesn't say anything and it just took me a long time before i ever saw them finally in context and saw the way that they worked and just that chemistry between the three brothers and and the four brothers was just amazing to think that you had these so distinct personalities of these guys and the way that they, they would play off of one another, I mean, the, the scenes in Duck Soup of Chico and Harpo just going at it, trading barbs and everything, and just, the, the like I said, that wordplay, just bouncing back and forth, and the way that they're just constantly insulting each other, 
And then just having Harpo there is this kind of like, I don't know, like force of nature coming in and just destroying everything, but nobody seems to mind. Yeah, he's he's the mime. I mean, there's it's definite if you look at the four characters that are in here, I mean, obviously Zeppo is the ultimate straight man. He's he's sort of the very proper and all of that stuff. He's not as crazy as the other three. Isn't Zeppo hysterical? Oh. The way he just stands there without expression or reaction. Boy, that cracks me up. Groucho is kind of straight in a way he's trying to get over on people i get it that he's like probably the schemer i guess like he knows that he's not supposed to be in these circles around these people but he does and he enjoys sort of buffooning them and making fun of their pomposity and then uh i I don't think chico i don't think you could do that today that character um i think back then i mean if we had sort of the quote-unquote cultural sensitivity that we have today uh that would be seen as offensive because (laughs) his whole character is this sort of italian immigrant i guess or some sort of mishmash of italian and eastern european immigrant which in some way they all were i mean they were all um you know you think they were all russian jews the marx brothers and then like i said just harpo is this mime character who can be just the the physical comedian more than I think uh, all of them. Those names, those stage names, and uh, that those personas to go with those names were uh, developed uh, over time on while they were a traveling stage act, which they were before they were a, uh, a movie entity. Yeah, and we should say that Duck Soup, obviously not their first film. So they have done this so many times by this point. And it was, I can't say it was old hat necessarily, but they were, they inhabited these characters so much. And they, they, I don't think they necessarily lived as these characters, but people just associated the characters with them at all times. So it's just, obviously they, they acted perfectly. There was no real acting they just seem to be these characters on stage and on screen they kind of live in that 1930s um there's several different groups of like 1930s comedy um some are short some are full features but i think in a way a lot of them also as you were saying john all come through vaudeville so like at this time you have the three stooges you have laurel and hardy uh and then these guys um, so, so in a way, I think each of them, when you went into each film, you already knew sort of what they were going to play. Like they're kind of doing the same, it, it, I, I guess it, it, in a way it's kind of like serials where you know that Groucho is going to be this kind of thing and Chico is going to do this. It's just what context are they in this time? Like, where are we putting them? The first few Paramount pictures, because I think I think is this the fourth one or the fifth one they do for Paramount? I forget. I think this is the fifth and final. Yeah, but the first four are all based on stage shows that they'd done previously. Um, and and then and the interesting thing as well around this time, with a lot of people coming out of vaudeville, but also a lot of people uh, coming out of the silent film slapstick world as well, is that there wasn't the or there didn't seem to be the sort of precious nature that there is today in terms of jokes and or bits being just of one person or just of one group you know uh, we talked about the mirror scene earlier and obviously the mirror scene is something that has not only been done prior actually to duck soup although not quite in the same way but is obviously then repeated post it but it's it's definitely a something that is born out of the theater and was being done by multiple different people at the same time um and in the same way the 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 vocal gags are being 
being done by other people and then are done subsequently. The uh, Pratt Falls and everything are obviously there are there's Buster Keaton and there's Charlie Chaplin and there's Lauren Hardy and there's other kind of people doing similar routines. So. But I think that the the reason why when people sort of say, well, what are you, what are your favorite sort of earliest comedians, certainly film comedians, while Lauren and Hardy would be up there, the Marx Brothers always pip it for me because of what we were saying about the idea that they do a bit of everything. They've all developed their characters, and then within those characters, the stories they tell and the wild flights of fancy, and all the different types of comedy that they pack into a very sort of tight and hectic one hour, sometimes one hour ten films are just incredible. And and it's interesting actually because the 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 most of their authentic, weird and wonderful stuff comes in those Paramount movies. By the time you move through to the MGM things, and there's two box sets out there that I would encourage people go see, Paramount one and, and an MGM one. By the time you get to the MGM one, they're under a much stricter guideline of having more um, stronger plots and things like that, and, and, and more sort of love interests and serious music and things like that. Like MGM are trying to shape them to be sort of more theatrical and more uh, um, like a, a contemporary film almost but those early paramount ones are so full of joy and anarchy that that they're really my favorite i think and i was going to talk a bit about this one and i'm sure uh, as we go we can get deeper into it i mean it's it's only 68 minutes long uh that's one thing and at times i mean i mean obviously back then features were about 70 minutes it could be a little bit longer because of course you had the cartoons and newsreels and all that other stuff but uh, at times, it kind of feels like it's missing pieces. Like there's almost things that are like like when you watch it and you get into it, it's fine. Like you're if you don't sit there and go, what about this? And huh, you know. But it just sort of seems that things skip around quite a bit, and um, and, and is kind of jumpy. So I, I often wonder, looking at it in as I was watching it for the show and taking notes and really trying to, you know, pull stuff out of it instead of just enjoying it as an entertainment, which I usually do like visiting a, a favorite old record or, or music. I was like, wow, I'm like, this thing really is kind of jumpy. And like, there's things that are really not explained as to why certain things happen, but we just, we just got to go with it. You know, like, like don't think too much about it. Well, they set up one character, this, uh, um, Vera Marcal character, as this dancer and there's talk about her being a dancer and you expect that at some point she's going to try to woo Rufus T. Flyer, Firefly, the uh, Groucho Marx character. And she just is kind of there a little bit, but there's not really a whole lot of dancing and there's not a whole lot of wooing going on either. So yeah, there, there are definitely moments where you're just like, Wait a second here, and, and you can find out a little bit more about some of these scenes in in the various drafts of the script. And and I was glad to be able to dig some of these things out. But yeah, you're right. It it just it feels very choppy a lot of times. Even in, even to go and I'll dive more into the script in a little bit here. But the whole idea of we start with this 
meeting of uh, the the Fredonia. We have these two countries, Fredonia and Sylvania, and we start with this meeting of the Fredonia uh, Congress or whatever the the government there. And apparently, they are very broke, and they have one person who can give them money, Mrs. Teasdale, who's played by Margaret Dumont, who has been in several Marx Brothers films. And to me, she's the ultimate straight man or straight woman in this case. She just takes that abuse from Groucho and everybody else like nobody's business and just has that proper hoity-toity kind of uh, attitude and everything. And, and I just love watching her reactions to these things. Well, she's going to give them $20 million if they'll put Rufus T. Firefly, Groucho Marx, in charge of the country. And little do they know that he has no intention of actually doing anything for the country other than trying to take it for a free ride. It sounds like someone who's running for president. But the thing that's interesting about this is that there's two questions that is set up right there that are not answered at all, even throughout the entire film, is who is Mrs. Teasdale? And her husband left her the fortune. Well, what the hell did he do? Nobody explains where the money came from and why she's so revered. And then on top of it, why the hell did she want Rufus T. Firefly as the president? Because... There's no background to what the hell he's even about. So it's like you're kind of a double loss in the first two minutes. If you think about it logically, you're like, okay, who is this woman? Where did she get her money? And then there's the whole thing with, you know, who's who's Firefly? Why why does she want him? Unless it's just a pure sort of like uh, emotional relationship thing where she's like, oh, I really like this guy. And if I, you know get him appointed president and maybe we'll have something going on. You know what I mean? But also there's a, there's another level in here on top of that. And this is sort of the, the political aspect where the, the, the first image you see in duck soup is the NRA logo. And no, it's not the national rifle association. It's the national recovery administration. Now, in order to understand what the national recovery administration is, you have to go back and learn a little bit about the great depression. So in 1933, Roosevelt sets up the National Recovery Administration, which is supposed to be uh, a group that's supposed to sort of put some controls on big business in order to make sure people get paid and and sort of take care of things and try to have a recovery after the Great Depression and the stock market crash. Uh, a few years later, it gets disbanded because it's seen as anti-constitutional and anti-competitive, uh, much to the, the love of a lot of big business people. Well, the thing is, is between 33 and 34 – uh, around this time, there was some business people right around actually around the time this movie was made. So it's kind of interesting that tried to overthrow Roosevelt for all of his New Deal stuff. They had gone out and found this general by the name of Smedley Butler, who had been a World War One general. He was actually a double Medal of Honor winner. And he eventually came out later in the 30s with a pamphlet called War is a Racket and talked about how basically the military is used for no other reason but to go in and make lots of money for big business. And so to me, this kind of plot in here with her giving the money to the government so that it will do what she wants it to do is quite fascinating. It's it's a little bit of a satire, but it's not fully explained as to what they're doing. There's also the great thing about uh, Margaret Dumont and and the way she plays the role um, that also actually fits into sort of what you're saying about the plot, and that is that it's sort of in order for the humor to work, yes, the straight people in the film have to acknowledge sort of the Marx Brothers to, to some extent, but they can't acknowledge 
all of them, like all the things that they're doing, sort of some of their stuff is surreal or hyper real and is is happening around them and other stuff like the end word of every line of dialogue or whatever or when he says uh can't you tell that i love you or whatever she can go oh rufus but she's not acknowledging any of the other mad stuff he said to her previously and it's a it's a bit like that with the the plots as well in the sense that uh, you acknowledge enough to make the joke work uh, but if you try and dig into it too deeply, you are going to kind of get lost in a rabbit hole of, well, I don't know what's going on because the whole point is the humor is going on. Now, there, there's all the satire and, and uh, uh, there's all the sort of meaning under the humor. Uh, but in general, we as the audience, much like uh, the straight people in the film, have to acknowledge some of it, uh, but not <laughs> not dig too deep into all the bits and bobs. Because, of course, if it was real, if it was reality, or if it was a, a, a linear plot or a linear um, situation, uh, then then you would immediately just get, look, could you stop talking, please? And, you know, we need to get on with this. You know, you would immediately <laughs> stop him down or arrest him or lock him up. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put up with it for five minutes. So... I think it would. It just would have been interesting to hear sort of where this money comes from, who she is, and like why him? Because like I said it's never really clear as to who he is and why he's there. Uh, right. Outside and of the fact that it's just Groucho. I mean, it would have been funny if he was, you know, some, you know, great scholar or something, or he has some knowledge of something and that's why she wants him i mean i mean i'm sure it would be flimsy as hell and it wouldn't matter anyway but uh for me i i guess i just have to fill in the blanks as to <laughs> why that is yeah and i i also think that it does if you're looking at it with contemporary eyes i guess or if you look at some of the uh, anti-war satires that have come since the film the, the satire is not at its sharpest or most complete or most organized it's a knockabout marx brothers uh, silly comedy but it's submersive because it's because it's um sneaking in satire and sneaking in political points and sneaking in little jabs at either big business or big government or whatever it is throughout the film um but ultimately its purpose is to entertain you know in the one of the the scripts that I found, they have before the scene in the the high chamber or whatever. There's a whole idea of this scene where this agitator, and we see the agitator. He's played by Leonid Kimsky, and we see him after Firefly takes office. We see him talking Torrento, and he is there trying to rile up this crowd, and and they're being very overtaxed in Fredonia and he's trying to rile them up and trying to start this revolution. And when they finally decide that Firefly is going to take office, there's a little bit more to it where Dumas goes out and addresses the crowd and says that Firefly is going to take office and the crowd is very happy about that. And, you know, the, the government will continue. And then rather going to the next scene where Firefly takes office, we have, it goes to the scene that we know comes third, or the sequence that is third, which is seeing the agitator say, I have failed, Ambassador. I know it, I know it, you idiot. I'm sorry. You have muddled everything. If you'd started the revolution as I planned, during the turmoil, I could have stepped in and placed Fredonia under the Sylvanian flag. Our flag. But Firefly blocked us. Your Excellency, you have no idea how popular he is in Fredonia. Oh, yes, I've known of that, too. That's why I have two spies shadowing him. 
I want to find out something about him. Something to disgrace him. To discredit him with the people. And then having uh, Pinky and Ciccolini coming in and, and talking to Torrento. So it, it's weird how they kind of flip that. We actually see Pinky, the Car- Harpo character... He's in the movie before he's actually introduced. He is there with the uh, the motorcycle with the sidecar, and he comes in. We have no idea who his character necessarily is. As the audience, we go, oh, hey, that's Harpo Marx. But as a film, we have no idea who this guy is. And then it's interesting that he's already been introduced in the screenplay in that next scene. Obviously, the idea of agitators causing problems and trying to overthrow the government, I mean, this is only – what, 12 years past uh, the, the, the 20s, uh, the World War One. I. I mean, World War One does play uh, a role in here uh, to a certain extent. And uh, I would say agitators, obviously, uh, someone trying to foment a revolution. That's what caused World War I. Uh, you could look at the Russian Revolution. You could look at Sacco and Vanzetti. There was a whole bunch of uh, anarchists in the 1920s in America. Uh, that was part of the reason why uh, J. Edgar Hoover became who J. Edgar Hoover was, was he was trying to crack down on supposed anarchists. And that's why the ACLU was formed, because they were trying to protect people from being labeled as anarchists. So so there's all that in there. And then also, probably around the time this was shot, if not a little bit after, July of 32, was the bonus march. And the bonus march was after World War One. all the soldiers who came back were told that they were going to receive a bonus for the war. And there was a big encampment on the mall in Washington, D.C. And they were like, all right, fine, give us our money because we're broke. And it's the Great Depression and we need the money. So there was a big struggle between uh, the government and the soldiers who had fought. So there were those who were concerned at that time that there was going to be some sort of revolution that took place because you had all these guys who obviously had military training, camping out, going, give us our money. So all of this, I think, in a way, while it is, like you said, um, let's make a light comedy for the kids uh, <laughs> and people during the, the worst days of the Great Depression, uh, would have things that I think contemporary audiences would go, oh, okay, I can see what what they're uh, connecting the dots to here, or at least uh, an allusion to. Yeah, I, I think I was just saying that um, it's not polished, I guess. It's, it's not something as sort of biting or as thought out as some of the ones that come post this with with contemporary eyes at the time it may have played as a far more sort of biting and uh, irreverent satire but i think with contemporary eyes or certainly maybe it's just me i don't have the knowledge necessarily of the history of the time and in as, as much detail but for me i sort of see it more as the, with the satire is it's in fairly broad strokes most of it with the occasional kind of pointed remark or the occasional pointed character yeah, and I actually kind of appreciate that it does feel kind of, I won't say thrown together, but it does feel like it is, is um, it's very loosely held together. It feels like this movie could break apart at any moment. You know, it, it, it feels like it takes these weird turns and we never know exactly where it's going. Like the the idea of the, um, the, the peanut vendor and the lemonade stand, like this just, it kind of comes out of nowhere and it's really apropos of barely anything it manages to get chico to the uh to the palace or the executive mansion and he becomes the new secretary of war but there's really no point to those scenes otherwise other than that they're hysterically funny and to me those seem like sketches that would have been done on stage 
Yeah, and it's it's almost like in a sitcom you have the A plot and the B plot. It's almost the B plot of the film is Chico's constant harassment of the lemonade vendor because it even goes right up to the announcement of war and Chico sees the lemonade or sees a beautiful woman in the, in the house um, and goes in to, to chase the woman and uh, it turns out that this happens to be the lemonade vendor's wife. And then there's sort of a, a, a sort of an ending of that story, which is where Chico surreally pops up out of his bathtub playing a bugle. Harpo, sorry, yeah. It comes out of the bathtub playing a, a, a bugle, which is, is sort of the end of that story. But it is the B-plot throughout the film, which is the hats, the burning of the hats or the, the, the changing of the hats, the attacking of the, the stands back and forth, and then, and then the ultimate thing, which is chasing his woman, essentially, I guess. So once he's uh, picked, then there's the big uh, reveal of, of Groucho, uh, Rufus T. Firefly to become the new leader and I love how uh, the military lines up they got their swords out everyone's expecting them to walk in and make the grand entrance but no uh, for some reason, he's already asleep upstairs, and he comes down through a fire pole, like, behind everybody. Such a bizarre thing to do. And yeah, there's a, there's a little bit more to that gag as well, where he's not showing up, and Zeppo goes over, and um, Zeppo, at this point in the script, by the way, is, is uh, Groucho's son. He's not his secretary. He kind of flip-flops in the script between the two roles. And he uh, has a, a buzzer system, kind of like Trento does, and he buzzes, wakes Groucho up with a fire bell, and then Groucho has to find out exactly where the fire bell is coming from, and then uh, figure out which pole it is, and then slide down into the right room. And then I love that he, after he slides down, he sneaks around, and all the guys with the swords are looking up the staircase where he's supposed to come down. You know, they've all got their their swords out, and he bothers the guy. He goes, "You expecting somebody?" And he's like, yeah. So he holds his cigar up <laughs> like a sword. And then eventually Margaret Dubois goes, oh, you're here. You know, great. And then that leads to, I, I think, it probably because I've seen that section so many times. It's one of those sections like, like I can just put that section on and watch it through. I don't have to watch the rest of the film. And I'm, I, I, I'm happy. Like it's the the most exciting, happy bit that I love. Uh, it's all the back and forth between them, uh, which uh, John did a little bit of in the beginning, and uh, being introduced to Ambassador uh, Ambassador Trentino and the uh, the Vera Markel. I danced before Napoleon. No Napoleon danced before me. In fact, he danced two hundred years before me. Perhaps sometime we get a chance to dance together, huh? I could dance with you till the cows come home. On second thought, I'd rather dance with the cows and you come home. And then, uh, if it's not asking too much, I think probably the greatest satire of government song ever written for film, These Are the Laws of My Administration, in which, you know, of course, it is Freedonia, so it is the land of the free, but there's a lot of rules in being free. Yeah, and it's nice how in that song, all the rules that, that Groucho says his administration is going to be against, he is doing. So it's absolutely fine for him to be whistling and smoking and chewing gum and all the rest of it. But if he catches anyone else doing it, then, of course, they're in trouble, you know, which is, which is again, a great, great kind of commentary on the, the ruling classes versus the, the plebs. <laughs> and, and at the same time, though, 
I often see this uh, sort of back and forth between Firefly and, and Ambassador Trentino as um, sort of a battle between the high and low. And what I mean by that is is that I would say that Trentino probably represents you know the the upper, the elite, the bourgeois, and therefore Firefly is kind of the low, the worker, because he seems a little bit more disheveled. Uh, he's a little bit more common in his language. And then uses aspects of of the high culture and and the high expectation to start things <laughs> with Trentino, right. where where he smacks him in the face with the glove and all that stuff, and you know all this ah you know kind of I'll duel you you've dishonored my family and all of this ridiculousness. Well, there's also a crazy two things happening with Groucho's character, which is on one hand he's thumbing his nose at all the hierarchy and all the pomposity of and ceremony of um you know politics or government or whatever it is um but at the same time his character that he's playing has to also be a satire on leaders enacting crazy rules and all the rest of it both his character do you understand what i mean like his character is satirizing something but at the same time his character is also someone who is in the middle of all this thumbing his nose at the hierarchy so he's both the hierarchy and thumbing his nose at it but in playing the hierarchy is also satirizing it like it's a two thing is going on in his character you know where you see people playing authority figures, uh, I think of obviously like Cleese and Chapman in Monty Python. They play authority figures, or and or Stephen Fry in Blackadder Goes Forth, which has, funny enough, a lot of sort of duck soup uh, stuff in it. You see those characters, and they are purely satirizing the hierarchy by being ridiculous or silly or whatever it is, but while being also in suits or in uniform or whatever it is. But rarely do they then go around and also then make jokes at the expense of other people within the hierarchy it's normally just satirizing and groucho is doing both you know well, yeah, he is almost always at the losing end when it comes to his conversations with Ciccolini. When when he gets appointed Secretary of War, I mean, their exchanges, Ciccolini really is, con- well, they're insulting each other all the time, but as Groucho is the quote-unquote authority figure, he should be getting the upper hand, but he really isn't. He's getting insulted just as much as Ciccolini is getting insulted. In fact, I think Ciccolini gets the better of him, especially with that riddle about what is it? Got a big black mustache, smokes a big black cigar, and he's a big pain in the neck. Now don't tell me. Has a big black mustache, smokes a big black cigar, and has a big pain in the... Does he wear glasses? <laughs> That's right. You guess it quick. Just for that, you don't get the job I was going to give you. What job? Secretary of War. All right, I take it. So. Which to me is that another level down is the immigrant making fun of the working class guy just above him as the working class guy is making fun of the, you know, the leaders and the business owners above him. So it's almost like three levels, three stratas of society going at each other. We always think of Groucho Marx, I guess, as the 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 Bugs Bunny character almost getting the better of everybody with his quick wit or his uh, 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 funny movements or whatever it is. But actually, you know, Harpo and Chico will always get the better of Groucho, you know, like the, the sort of Harpo and Chico are kind of untouchable because in a, in a sense they don't care. Like, I mean, Harpo particularly is probably the most 
uh, anarchistic of any of them. You know, he goes around with his big pair of scissors, cutting everything, you know, <laughs> just sort of he goes through the world uh, destroying stuff either for his own amusement uh, or, or for his own benefit, you know. Therefore, he's sort of untouchable. You can't really and, – and he hasn't got a voice. So – you know, if you try and argue with him, he just honks a horn at you or squirts your face with water and off he goes. He's sort of above it all. It's it's quite incredible. Well, and he defies the laws of logic. You know, he he, he is a surreal character. You know, he's got a tattoo of himself on one arm. He's got the dancing woman on the other arm. <laughs> and he's got the, the uh, dog house in the center of his chest where a real dog head pops out. So he, he is not bound by human laws. No, no, no. no. And, and for some reason, uh, when I think of Harpo, as you're explaining him, as sort of the ultimate anarchist because he's just – you know, not bound by any rules or expectations. I got this voice of Michael Caine in my head for some reason. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. But oh, in a more amusing way, as opposed to an evil, destructive way. He he destroys things, it seems, for his own amusement rather than anything else. It doesn't seem like he's doing it out of any sort of malicious intent. No, except wow. that you could say he, he is a clown, right? Exactly. He's very clown-like, but, but he also... He does go after the <laughs> lemonade vendor. I mean, he has no appreciation of his property or... <laughs> his clothes or who he is or what he's trying to do it's 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 just uh he can burn his hats cut his pockets you know run around inside his tank of lemonade it doesn't really matter to him he's just gonna destroy it for your own immediate and there's 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 a little bit of sort of mischief it's not malicious but it's mischievousness i guess the other aspect that i get when i look at harpo in this film is that it almost seems and i think that this is before that, so it, it's almost like he's got Felix's bag of tricks. It's like he can reach into his pocket and pull out all kinds of odds and ends. You know, it's like uh, he's got a blowtorch. Where did the blowtorch come from? <laughs> well, there was a line in the one movie where they're like, you can't burn the candle at both ends. And it, out of his bag of tricks or out of that overcoat, he pulls the lit candle, you know, at burning at both ends. Yeah, he he has that touch with the, the magical realm. I mean, there was supposed to be a joke in here where somebody was talking about the wolves are at the door, and he goes over and opens up the door, and there are all these wolves outside. So he's constantly being able to do those kind of things. I mean, he, and he does, unfortunately, him being in this kind of surreal realm kind of trips him up every once in a while because he runs across that radio when he's trying to be really quiet getting the, the war plans, and the radio is the loudest radio ever playing the, the most raucous version of Stars and Stripes forever ever, and he can do anything to this radio, and it's still going to be playing the music. Even if the radio is gone, the, the music is still going to be there. Back to your point on Chico, it's like really if it wasn't for Chico and Groucho going back and forth, Groucho wouldn't have anyone who's even on the level with him because there's nobody in the film that could keep up with him. Like Margaret Dumont just sort of like sits there and goes, oh, you know, just kind of like laughs. And then, and then Trentino can kind of go with him a little bit to a point. 
Harpo's not because what he's going to do is honk's horn at him or whatever. But like from a from a wordplay standpoint, he needs someone who's almost a peer, you know, if not better, uh, because that allows him to go back and forth. I mean, some of my favorite lines are in that bit where you were talking about he's got the stand outside and he's like, hey, you know, you should come up here and like, give you one of them soft government jobs. And uh, he asks him, you know, would you like a, would you like the job in the mint? He goes, no, no like mint. What other flavor you got? <laughs> and, then, and then once he decides to take the job as Secretary of War, I, I always like that line. I've used it many times before. It's like, uh, I think we should have a standing army. I should have a standing army. So that way you can save money on chairs. I mean, that, <laughs> that's the kind of shit that I like. That's fucking funny. I like. I have friends of mine on Facebook and Twitter who groan when I make bad puns. But fuck you. I've watched enough Marx Brothers films, and that's why I'm I'm infected by the pun machine. It's really interesting because you would think that you've got Groucho being verbal and uh, Harpo uh, being physical. Sort of what role would Chico play? But the fact that he's able to go uh, word for word uh, with Groucho um, while also being able to uh, ably assist Harpo in his physical uh, comedic antics, he's sort of the perfect go-between the two, you know, he kind of slots right there in the middle, which is, which is wonderful. Yeah, I feel bad for Zeppo in this one because he had that role a little bit in other films. He was able to, if he wasn't being stuck in that leading man type of role, which just never really suit him, he was able to keep up with the other brothers when it came to some of the wordplay stuff. And it just, he has nothing to play off of in this movie at all. He's barely in this film. The other point I, I wanted to make um, was about Trantino. Again, it's a prime example in the sequence uh, where um, Ciccolini and Harpo are going in, uh, Ciccolini and Pinky, sorry, are going into his office, and you know they run amok in the office. Like I was saying earlier, they have to kind of susp- you have to suspend uh, your disbelief because you have to believe that despite being absolutely run roughshod by these two guys throughout this entire sequence with stuff being stuck on him and stuff being snipped and the whole cigar play and everything back and forth and the um, uh, baseball stuff that they do, which is all, all fantastic. At the end, he still has to go, okay, now go work. You know, now you have to continue working for me. Whereas in reality, you just be like, who are you, Lutz? Get out of my office. It, it, it's that delicate balance between, and he, he plays it, like uh, Louis Calhoun plays it completely straight and he gets frustrated and he gets angry and he's like well you guys sit down and then of course they sit down behind him on his chair and you know he plays it completely straight and gets frustrated and all the all the normal reactions but then has the abnormal reaction of going okay i'm going to give you a second chance (laughs) which which plays wonderfully for us the audience but obviously is not it's hyper real it's not real you know I want to try to bring us right back to the plot at some point in here and just, and because there's not a whole lot of plot to this film, really. And we've kind of touched on things here and there. Basically, there's, there is kind of an A plot and a B plot as far as the, the movie that Chico and Harpo are in, which occasionally runs into the movie that Groucho is in. And Groucho as Rufus D. Firefly is the leader of Fredonia and Trentino is the uh, ambassador from Sylvania. And, the whole thing is that we get from the beginning is that Sylvania Trentino wanted a revolution to take place in Fredonia and then Sylvania would take over Fredonia. So there's this background of war that's going on. But at the same time, instead of the war being for quote unquote legitimate reasons, 
Groucho feels supposedly insulted by Trentino. That's it. Like he insulted him and his family, and therefore I'm, I'm going to start a war with you, which kind of sounds like another president we had. But anyway, um, <laughs> this whole thing seems to be the basis. So there's this back and forth where he insults him, he smacks him, and he goes, that's it. I guess we're done. We're, you know, we're going to have a war. And then uh, Margaret Dumas' character is trying to get them to reconcile and get them together. And it's like, so, like, let's all be nice, boys, and not have this war. And uh, it's like, okay, I will, as long as he apologizes. And then, like, it happens again. So that's how we end up with the the big, we're going to war and then the actual war thing. But in between, there's the whole thing about uh, sedition and treason uh, related to Ciccolini uh, eventually being found out as uh, giving information to the enemy. Uh, there's also, I think it all stems from that garden party that Margaret Dumont is holding. Trentino and Rufus are both sort of wooing her, and like Rufus barges Trentino out the way and is doing some sort of verbal stuff. Uh, with her and then he calls him an upstart and that's what um gets uh groucho's you know that's what makes him angry and then later there's that great scene where he's like it was silly of me to lose my temper on account of that little thing you called me little thing i called you why what did i call you gosh i don't even remember what it was (laughs) (laughs) well do you mean uh, worm no that wasn't it i know swine uh-uh. No, it was a seven-letter word. Oh, yes. Upstart. That's it. Upstart. Oh, please, Mrs. Please. Teasdale, this man is impossible. This is an outrage. My course is clear. This means war. Oh. You runt. I still like upstart the best. And then right before you get the big war announcement, Margaret Dumont and uh, Mrs. Teasdale tries to get them to uh, uh, reconcile one last time. And Groucho has that excellent thing before Trentino shows up to reconcile with him. Groucho does that big thing where he talks himself into a frenzy. And he's like, I will offer him my hand. And then he says, but wait a minute, what if he rejects my hand? And then he plays out the scenario of what would happen if he rejects his hand. And then the moment Trentino walks in, he goes, reject my hand, would you? And like slaps him around the face. And then Trentino says, okay, third strike. And 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 now we're at war. But it, it, it is... I think a comment on petty egos, stupidity, vanity, uh, lust for power, all that kind of stuff that in reality leads us to, to, to war or at least conflicts, I guess. Yeah, and there is that B-plot of the war plans, as you were saying, Rob, the whole idea of the sedition, which really – I mean, you could cut that stuff right out of here, but it's so much fun at the same time. And that's what leads us to the break-in at the house, where it took me a long time before I realized that Dumas and, and Firefly, uh, Teasdale and Firefly, are just right down the hall from each other. I was thinking that they were in different buildings, but apparently they're all in the executive mansion, and that's what is being broken into. And that's what leads us to the the amazing mirror scene of both uh, – I mean, it, it can get any better when you have both Chico and Harpo dressed up as Groucho and running around and then I love when 
Chico is is trading lines with Mrs. Teasdale, and she thinks that uh, you know he's gone off to Italy, and now he has this fantastic accent. So they- <laughs> she 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 gets, she gets that great funny line where she says, you know, you've got it down, like it sounds very authentic or something like that. She gets to say, oh no, you've got the dialect perfect. I think is is the is the line. Um, and then of course Harpo who can't talk, and then he still has his um, uh, um, horns in his stomach. So at one point, even though he's dressed as Groucho, he's communicating with horns. But the 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 whole that whole sequence where they break into the house, you have the the noisy radio that you talked about earlier, which is fantastic, and then you have the sequence in the bedroom uh, with Margaret Dumont um, basically becoming overwhelmed and just wanting a glass of water, and all three Marx Brothers are you know Chico's under the bed, and then uh, Harpo comes in, and Harpo goes out, and then Groucho comes in, and all that interplay is going on which is fantastic and then like you say it culminates in that in the the famous mirror mirror sequence um but but that whole middle section of the film which like you say plot wise is not really important other than it then leads to that wonderful court sequence with Ciccolini and uh, Groucho in in court which is just i mean it's tremendous court Court sequences are, are, are ripe for uh, um comedy anyway there's some great i think it's airplane 2 isn't it where the uh, they do some fantastic court jokes and uh, court stuff and uh, but but yeah that all culminates in that and it it doesn't help the overall plot but it does allow for two great set pieces I flew with Stryker during the war I'll never forget the night we bombed Macho Grande Stryker was a squadron leader he brought us in real low but he couldn't handle it Buddy couldn't handle it was Buddy one of your crew right Buddy was the bombardier but it was Stryker who couldn't handle it and he went to pieces. Andy went to pieces? No. Andy was the navigator. He was all right. But he went to pieces. It was awful how he came unglued. How he came unglued? Oh, no. How he was a rock. The best tail gunner in the outfit. But he came unglued. Andy bailed out? No. Andy hung tough. But he bailed out. How we survived was a miracle. Then how we survived? No, afraid not. We lost Howie the next day. Over Macho Grande? No, I don't think I'll ever get over Macho Grande. Once they get into court, it is this whole thing where Groucho will set up something and then Chico will knock it down. War would mean a prohibitive increase in our taxes. Hey, I got an uncle who lives in taxes. No, I'm talking about taxes, money, dollars. Dollars, that's where my uncle lives, dollars taxes. (laughs) And then there's one line where... Groucho just sets up something, and it's so complex that there's no way that Chico can take it apart. Look at Ciccolini. He sits there alone. An abject figure. I abject. I say, look at Ciccolini. He sits there alone. A pitiable object. Let's see you get out of that one the best line was uh, gentlemen Ciccolini here may talk like an idiot and look like an idiot but don't let that fool you he really is an idiot I implore you send him back to his father and brothers who are waiting for him with open arms in the penitentiary I suggest that we give him 10 years in Leavenworth or 11 years in 12 worth and then Ciccolini goes I'll tell you what I'll do I'll take 5 and 10 in Woolworth which is absolutely <laughs> incredible I mean just sitting down to write that and come up with that is is absolutely phenomenal and then of course you get the kind of it's a great joke but it's also grown worthy the one about that's irrelevant and he goes irrelevant hey that's the answer there's a whole lot of irrelevance in the circus which is which is just tremendous but it's also kind of wah, wah. but uh, yeah i mean that whole sequence 
sequence in the court with their back and forth. And again, it's it's both wordplay, but it's also surreal, but it's also clever. Like it just everything about it, I'm in love with. The, the, just the use of language is incredible. Well, and then to just turn so quickly and immediately when they decide, okay, we're going to go to war and then have it turn into a musical number. Yeah. And just one of the best musical numbers. And I love that uh, even though they're spies, even though Ciccolini was on trial for treason, he's right there with them. And he's one of the, the four Marx brothers who are going to be going to war. Him and Harpo are right there. Let's let's go ahead and go to war with Sylvania. Since there are really no other characters, Groucho kind of needs everyone he can get. So <laughs> it's, 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 also the, it's also the only sequence where all four Marx brothers are doing a bit in front of or the first time in the film because obviously later in the war sequences there are but it's the first time in the film where all the marks four marks brothers are together singing that incredible song and um i i think it's also wonderful i think it's in hannah and her sisters that woody it's the sequence that woody allen sees after his existential crisis that brings him back to reality and makes him go look there's people up on the screen they're singing they're dancing they're having fun like this is what life's all about and uh it's yeah, it's both a wonderful moment of joy and fun and silliness and all the rest of it, but they're also gearing up for war. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. It's a well, great uh, uh, juxtaposition. The other thing that I read, and maybe uh, the the interviews can uh, help to explain if this is true or not, is that um, much like uh, we had talked about before on Song of the South, there was some concern with the minstrel aspects of this song and dance number and how it may be offensive today and that they were talking about actually trimming part of it out. There's actually two references in here to uh, things that I think uh, would probably be like, eh, that's kind of, uh, you know, we might want to change the the wording on that. One is, uh, as we were talking about before, the um, the back and forth between uh, Trentino and Firefly in which uh, Firefly says uh, that the headstrongs around the Armstrongs and this and that, and that's how darkies were born. And the use of the term darkies, but that's actually a song that was in a musical. I had to look that up. And uh, it was. Yeah, that's uh, one of the jokes that I. That's one of the jokes that flies right by my ear because while I understand that the slur, I don't get the reference. Which I looked up and it was Kate Smith, who was best known that during World War II for singing, uh, what was it? The. God bless America or whatever was like the the, the big version, um, but also Paul Robeson had recorded a version of this song. And yeah, and apparently it was a satire song. It wasn't supposed to be, um, you know, uh, taken seriously. So, and then the whole thing with the minstrel aspects with them, you know, singing with with an accent and all that stuff while they're playing the banjos and that. Yeah, okay, you can say that's minstrel show, but at least you're not doing blackface. So. I don't understand. Uh, I I don't necessarily see that as offensive in the way that, like we've talked about blackface on the show before. Yeah, but we talked about black actors in blackface. All God's children's got guns. That's another thing where they were making a reference. I'm trying to remember what the original song was, but it's like, yeah, some of those things really kind of hit weird now, and especially, yeah, the the that's why the darkies were born. It's just like, what the hell does that mean? What what? Yeah. And it just comes out of left field, and it's just like, okay, in 1933, that would have meant something completely different than it does right now. Yeah, yeah they 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 got guns. We got guns. Um, it's uh, from an old spiritual that's all God's children got wings was the name of it. And uh, it was considered for deletion 
um, out of a DVD release, really, uh, with, uh, later on for fear of offending African-Americans. But, I mean, I, I, I'm not one for that. I don't think you go back and edit books. You shouldn't go back and edit movies. They are what they are, and they are a period of their time, you know. Yeah. And then, of course, in the lead-up to the actual, I guess, sort of battlefield scene, which is mostly just them holed up in a house, uh, firing out a wall. Um, you have, <laughs> you have all these references to other American wars, such as the revolutionary war with Paul Revere's ride and things like that leading up to it. And then of course, uh, you get into the house and then there's the great line when they're fighting, when Teasdale shows up, remember you're fighting for this woman's honor, which is more than she ever did. And it's 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 uh, odd. I don't know if it, it informed it or whether it influenced it, but the ending, in a weird way, although it doesn't break the fourth wall in the same way, feels a bit like the ending of Blazing Saddles in the sense that any reality that was anchoring the movie completely goes out the window. Like even even in this movie, which has the flimsiest of realities, uh, all of that goes out the window. You know, every time we cut back to Groucho, he's di- wearing a different uniform. The stock footage they use is a combination of, of all different things. At one point, he says, uh, people are coming to our aid and you see absolutely everything from dolphins in the ocean to people on bikes to, to uh, monkeys climbing out of trees. All reality is suspended at this point and it becomes a... Uh, a frantic deconstruction of, um, sort of, like you say, all wars and and the silliness of it all. You yeah. know, I mean, really, the closest you can get to some of this stuff. I mean, even from John when you're talking about, or, or Rob when you're talking about how he comes down the pole and he's there with the uh, his cigar up and he's like, you know, what what are we waiting for, kind of thing. I mean, that's totally uh, Bugs Bunny. You know? I was going to say the what same are you thing. Doing, Doc? Yeah, I was going to say the yeah. same thing when he when when the bad guy is looking down one hole and Bugs Bunny comes out of another hole and comes up behind him. You know, that kind of thing. That's that's completely that sort of humor. Yeah. And this, when they, when they call for reinforcements and it's all this bizarre stock footage that just suddenly gets cut into the movie, I mean, I'm not saying that Warner Brothers were doing it first or anything, but I'm just it just reminds me of a cartoon. It just it reminded me of when uh, America declared war against Bugs Bunny because he was doing all those awful things like sawing Florida off and, and casting it into the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> and there's all the army and everybody coming, you know, the cavalry, everybody is coming to get Bugs Bunny. It's just one of those weird moments, and it's just you know this it, it takes this movie into this kind of living cartoon realm which i think it's very comfortable living in it is odd to see surrealism to some extent surreal humor uh, especially in the modern day kind of uh, either take a back seat or be relegated to kind of pretentious art films that are allowed to kind of go off and be surreal just because look how clever we're being rather than it being funny surreal and really the only comedies i see doing that in terms of uh, not sticking to any kind of one solid reality uh, and and being ridiculous and being surreal and being joyful is probably something like Anchorman. It's probably an Anchorman 2 are probably the last two that I can think of that are really uh, just crazy for the sake of being crazy. Most comedies sort of post eight, post the 80s really kind of have to stick to whatever reality they are built up to be in the first place, if that makes any sense. <laughs> but speaking of reality, even though it's going off the surreal deep end at the end here, it does still land some really good points uh, against war, uh, one of which being um, who wants the rare privilege of sacrificing his life for his country? And then they draw straws. Uh, that is 
like if you put that line in a film today, I think you would get a lot of right wingers who would go, hey, you know, you know, what's the matter with you? You're bringing down the military. You can't say things like that. People who who sign up and fight their heroes. You you really can't say a lot lately. Like I'll I'll say a joke either on uh, Facebook or in in person, uh, you know, about something as innocuous as cyclists. You know, you go, oh, bloody cyclists! They don't, you know, uh, obey the cross crosswalks or whatever. And and uh, I'll get a string of opposition to people like, well, you know, they're saving the environment and they're you know better than people driving cars. But you cannot literally say anything about anybody anymore, even in a jokingly uh, uh, cynical and nihilist way uh you, you you get a volley of opposition you know if if v if you say something about vegans as a joke they all get up in our everyone gets up in arms about everything these days <laughs> it's ridiculous yeah the attitude towards war kind of reminds me you were you were talking john about uh, you know the 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 element of surrealism and stuff and and you made a good point with the anchorman movies but the only other uh area that i can think of where it's kind of safe to delve into surrealism in these comedies is when it comes to and some of them are terrible especially the the friedberg and seltzer movies but in the the parody films and that whole idea of this uh the attitude towards war really reminds me of something like a top secret you know and right. i think that might be one of the the last great things where we were parroting war outright and this thing seems like one of those things where it's like okay you know who who has the honor and privilege of, of sacrificing themselves and you know oh here's come here comes dead meat you know or uh, i know that was a hot shots reference but you know it's just like that seems to be the area where we can really go all out and because we are parroting stuff we can be as nasty or as politically incorrect as we want to be with this yeah and you do see those parodies from from their heyday whether it's the first airplane movie or top secret or the first naked gun movie whatever you see them slowly come apart to the point where they are just a series of the worst possible sketches you can imagine from the worst possible sketch show strung together by not even a you know, loosest of themes that, you know, the, the strongest parodies are the ones where you either take a film genre and or character aspect or whatever it is and play it out for all it's worth. And you can be surreal. Like you say, the Anchorman ones or hot shots or naked gun, you can be surreal within that. But at no point does Frank Drebin like stop being Frank Drebin, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, there's still a through line. Um, whereas in these latest parodies that are just awful, people, you know, to do completely ludicrous things for no other reason other than a, a crass boob joke, and it, it just doesn't. None of it means anything anymore. It's just, it's just noise and awfulness. Well, we sound like a bunch of old men, don't no, we? No, I, I think we sound like a bunch of enlightened individuals. Yeah, I love Groucho's hats in that last bit. I love his uniforms, and I just, uh, I want to say, even the outside of the, the the house that they're in seems to change from time to time, and there's it doesn't adhere to anything whatsoever. And some of those, some of those outfits that he's in get more and more ludicrous. I mean, that one where he's got the big black like Russian hat on and everything. It's just like, this is amazing. Is that meant to be a beef heater hat? Like a big English, like beef heater hat. Um, the, the, the soldiers that guard Buckingham palace. Cause they have big black hats like that. And what I found the funniest about that sequence, 
sequences that Groucho can barely keep it on his head. Like the way he's having to walk and move around the set is at such a sort of stooped level because this hat is just so large and unwieldy. Um, and that kind of adds comedy to the sequence. I think the house they're in blows up twice, or at least they, they use the same footage of the same house <laughs> blowing up twice. And there's also some great bits where they carry on regardless where debris and bits of the building and everything else are falling down around them and i think it's both groucho and margaret dumont that at some point get hit by a piece of falling scenery which i'm sure was polystyrene but but still and they they kind of carry on regardless and they're like little fun bits to see them plow on with the joke in despite the fact that there doesn't seem to be a lot of safety in the studio. They do genuinely seem to be being bombarded with, even if it is polystyrene, large sections of scenery falling on them. So that's kind of fun from a behind-the-scenes kind of aspect. Well, beyond the hats, he gets his head stuck on a uh, giant, they think it's a picture or it's a um, vase or something on his head. And then, oh, God, and yeah. then they draw his face <laughs> on it. <laughs> and then stick that little firework up in there to blow it up. <laughs> yeah, which again, I was just like thinking of a, a you know a stick of dynamite in a Warner Brothers cartoon. Yeah. yeah, I'm surprised he didn't have black soot all over his cheeks when that when it exploded. And then when the war is finally, I guess, won and Trentino is captured, he's basically sort of put in stocks to a certain point and then pelted with you know rotten fruit. So. It's kind of the the, the, the final comeuppance, I guess. Until Margaret Dumas starts singing the Fredonia theme <laughs> and she gets spelted. It's 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 a gag you see coming, but it's so wonderful. <laughs> it's just tremendous. But it it there's also that great sequence where Harpo gets um locked in a cupboard and um because they think he's going outside and in fact he goes into a cupboard full of fireworks, which proceed to just kind of explode around him. And um it's it's funny because years later in I think it's either the third or the fourth Pink Panther sequel. Peter Sellers is in an entire fireworks factory that starts to explode um, and has a very sort of also while I think he's wearing like a fat suit or something. So there's 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 that correlation that sort of 50 years later in a in a Peter Sellers movie, he's doing a lot of those gags as well. So and I think, you know, when you talk about why does this movie hold up or why is this movie still relevant or why should people still be watching this movie? It's because jokes like that or, or physical comedy like that doesn't it doesn't age. It's it's funny then it's funny now. All right, we're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. The first is with Robert Bader, the author of Groucho Marx and other short stories and tall tales. The second is with Bob Whitey, producer of Marx Brothers in a Nutshell. And the third is with Joe Adamson, author of Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Zeppo. And we'll be back with those right after these brief messages. Ready, set. Spartan Race is back for 2018, and we're accepting no excuses. Barbed wire crawls, tire drags, spear throws, and much more. Whatever your ability, you'll discover the right challenge for you. Take on our 5 to 25 kilometer events designed to push you to limits you never knew you could overcome. Complete an obstacle course race and let adventure back into your life. Are you ready to unleash your inner Spartan warrior? Visit spartanrace.uk. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. 
chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons and body counts? mathematics of murder and menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B-movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com Let's go to work. I don't know how he does it. I mean, the guy does books. He writes reviews. He's on the show every week with me. I'm talking about my humble podcast partner, Mike White from The Projection Booth. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary. I just wanted to let you know Cinema Detours. Mike's new book is out. It collects a bunch of reviews that he's done over the past decade or so for various places here and there. And you basically want to pick it up. And I'll tell you why. Because some of those older reviews, the movies that you have seen, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend. And then the movies that you haven't seen yet, well, Mike will add about another 100 to 150 movies that you're going to have to see before you die. You can give him a wedgie or something next time you see him. You can thank him for that one. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it over at our website, projection-booth.com. You can get it at amazon.com. And you can get it in either paper form, if you're old school, or you can get it for your Kindle, your e-reader. So there's no reason to detour Cinema Detours. From Mike White, and of course, you can always learn more about what we do, about the books, and everything else at projection-booth.com. Hey, Projection Booth listeners, I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor, and we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. <laughs> Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshock.com slash culturecast. Let me recommend founditemclothing.com for the best way you can get your geek on. Found Item Clothing has everything to proudly display your nerd love from Star Wars to Star Trek, from TMNT to BTTF. From S to WXL. And with Halloween right around the corner, Found Item Clothing has a wider range of costumes from Snake Plissken to Dude. From Snake Plissken to the Dude. From Snake Plissken to the Dude and everything in between. And everything in between. Visit founditemclothing.com today. Before it's too late. So you've been a fan of the Marx Brothers for a long darn time. I just completed a very large book about the Marx Brothers' early life and stage career. And I was asked to put in the introduction something about how I came to know the Marx Brothers. And it was very easy for me because I can remember a very specific moment. 
I was about eight years old, and I used to get dropped off at my grandmother's house on Saturdays when my dad went to work because I used to fight with my brother. So they'd separate us, and she would just park me in front of a television set with a grilled cheese sandwich and leave me there, figuring I'd stay out of trouble. And I was just flipping around the channels on a dial before there was remote control. We had to actually get up and turn the thing. And I saw what I later learned to be Harpo disrupting the Punch and Judy puppet show in monkey business. And I said, oh, well, I'll watch this. This looks interesting. And I watched it till the end of the film, and I loved it and thought it was really funny and then didn't think about it again because I was eight years old. Maybe a few months later, I'm at home watching television and, again, flipping through the channels. And I see that same guy chasing a turkey with a club around a hotel room. And later I learned that was room service. So far, I like to say in the book, um, the guy with the big black mustache had not yet made an impression. So far, I have discovered Harpo. <laughs> the second time around, I said, I've got to see who these guys are. So I wait till the end. I see the credits and I say, oh, okay. I go to the library a few days later. I mean, the internet would have been pretty useful in, what was it, 1969 or 70. Uh, but I went to the library and I looked them up and uh, to my amazement, there were books about them and they had written books. So I took a couple of books out of the library. And I think my parents were absolutely stunned that I didn't go near a television set the whole weekend. I just read Groucho and me cover to cover. I was hooked. I just wanted to know everything I could learn about them. And I was interested in doing research, you know, at a young age. Maybe by the time I was in high school, I was going to, you know, newspaper libraries and looking for clippings and trying to learn all the obscure, arcane stuff I could, not ever thinking this would be a book but just a big fan who wanted to know everything. And this is the golden age of discovering the Marx Brothers, in my opinion, because Groucho was still around. So he was going on TV, and you could see him on the Dick Cavett show and on Merv Griffin. And he would pop up occasionally on a variety show and sing in his old man voice, and it was kind of cool. And then the Carnegie Hall album came out. So if you were a young fan of the Marx Brothers, say between 1970 and 1975, you were just inundated with cool stuff that would make you love them even more. So how do you go from being a fan to actually somebody who's writing books and producing things about You Bet Your Life? What really was interesting is I didn't know I was going to do any of that stuff. I just was collecting everything I could get. And there's this sort of negative connotation of being an obsessive collector. And I don't really understand why that is. I guess there are people who are hoarders and pack rats who are just obsessive at all the things they can get. But I was collecting information. I was really interested in just knowing everything. And people used to say, what are you doing with all this stuff? And I think around the time I was you know, getting out of college, I would say stuff like, um, working on a book. And then later on, I'd say, you know, working on a documentary or something. And, you know, I wasn't really, but I just figured they wouldn't think I was crazy. And as I started to collect all these clippings and I started to discover that Groucho was a pretty funny writer and I really enjoyed the items that he'd write for the New Yorker and for judge, you know, all these different humor magazines and they'd pop up in the New York Herald Tribune they had a magazine section called this week. I loved these things. And then I noticed that there were little variations of these articles popping up in Groucho and me and memoirs of a mangy lover. And I said, you know, these are really good. I'd like other people to read them. So I did compile a book of his selected writings, and to my amazement, it got published in 1993, and it's done really well. It's had several foreign language editions. I mean, this is mystifying to me because I was just thrilled to get it published. But the fact that people like it and it keeps selling, and there's a new edition that came out in 2011 that I added additional material to. So it's sort of become a standard Groucho work, which pleases me greatly because I just enjoy this stuff so tremendously. But 
a lot of what Groucho wrote about was vaudeville. And I wanted to know everything I could learn about vaudeville. I decided that I would research that with equal insanity, just knowing everything I could about the March Brothers and vaudeville. And in much the same way, I eventually decided that that should be a book. And uh, it now is. I imagine there's a wealth of information about vaudeville, but I imagine it probably just goes a few inches deep, and you probably wanted to dig a lot farther than that. Yeah, what was really interesting to me is all the other books about the Marx Brothers, even the ones the Marx Brothers themselves wrote, didn't really go very deep. I would wonder about things like the transition that they described from becoming a comedy act having been the Four Nightingales, was a little murky. There were different little apocryphal stories. And they all told them differently. And, you know, Harpo Speaks has a different version of a story than Groucho and me. And then Chico wrote an article in the New York Times where he said it happened a different way. And I wanted to know what really happened. And to a certain degree, you can't find out. But you can find out a lot. Local newspapers covered vaudeville. And it required a lot of travel, a lot of visits to various libraries and historical societies. But in doing it, I discovered so much that hadn't ever been written in a book before. There are entire vaudeville acts that Groucho had appeared in as a young boy that have never been mentioned in any book. I'm really thrilled to be able to put that stuff out there. Uh, I just wanted the information for myself because I was curious, but then it turned into be quite a good story. There are things about their lives and what happened because they were in vaudeville that just make for great drama and occasionally hysterically funny stories that they didn't tell themselves. There'll be some very surprising disclosures in the book. You want to tease me with one of those? I mean, I, I'm over here drooling about this stuff. Yeah. I had to read this a few times when I first discovered it and I still read it today. And I look at it and say, how could this have actually happened? The Marx brothers were, let's say active young men out on the road looking for women and they would get into a little bit of trouble now and then with the local girls, which was a reason why vaudevillians were frowned upon by the local fathers. Uh, a lot of shotguns in vaudeville. The joke was, uh, and Fred Allen, great comedian Fred Allen, wrote a wonderful book about his days in vaudeville called Much Ado About Me. And he actually gets pretty graphic about some of this and says that the local girls in these towns we're not interested in the local boys because there was gossip and they would talk, but the vaudevillian would be there for three days or a week and then he'd go. So these women were available. And the Marx Brothers took advantage of that and partook often and occasionally were chased out of town on the wrong end of a shotgun. And in at least a couple of cases, the person with the shotgun hit his target, which would be uh, one of the more surprising elements of the book. Minnie, their mother, manager, creator, who really ran the whole show for a number of years, had a brilliant idea to keep them from getting in trouble with the local girls, and that was to start a school for chorus girls that she'd run out of their house in Chicago during the summer. And girls from around the country would come there to be trained in theatrical arts and how to be a chorus girl. And what they were really learning was that you go on the road with the Marx Brothers, you know, the Marx Brothers may look for a little bit more than a chorus girl every now and then. Apparently, you know, that happened with great frequency. Um, in the vaudeville trade papers, there used to be this sort of euphemistic ailment when someone had to leave the show and go to the hospital. Vaudeville was filled with uh, appendicitis attacks. Chorus girls were constantly leaving shows to have an appendix removed. In the case of the Four Marx Brothers Act, the question would always be, which Marx Brothers appendix is she having removed? 
it's uncanny that if you, for example, nowadays, when I started doing this, you couldn't search this stuff online. But now you can go search things like Variety and the New York Clipper. And if you just search the word appendix or appendicitis, boy, you're going to see that every chorus girl was getting this. It didn't seem to affect men. In one case, um, a girl who was in the Marx Brothers show for a few years was dating Harpo. Uh, they were quite a serious item. And she was expecting to get married. And the family didn't want to let Harpo marry this girl because they had some interesting reasons, which that I won't share. Got to make you read the book. She left the act and sued him for breach of promise and brought him to court in Chicago in 1915. So there was some interesting activity going on there. And you know, Groucho gave a, an interview on the Cabot show where he talked about a little bit of this. And he said, uh, you know, we, we got tired of the girls in the act. We were looking for fresh stuff, and we'd go out into these towns and find these girls. So, you know, Minnie's plan was a disaster on many levels, but mostly because, you know, they were traveling with a dozen girls or four of them. They got tired of them. How young were they when they started in vaudeville? Groucho was just shy of his 15th birthday when he answered a classified ad and got his first job in something called the Leroy Trio. And he was with another young guy named Johnny Morris, who had a career, actually. Uh, he ended up doing a lot of extra work and small supporting roles in Hollywood. He worked you know, through the 40s, 50s. He's in uh, Lil Abner, the version from the 40s with Buster Keaton. So Johnny Morris was kind of a known guy, not a big famous guy, but he worked steadily in vaudeville for many years. And he and Groucho got a job with Gene Leroy in the Leroy Trio. It was a short association. They just did a brief tour uh, in the summer of 1905. Groucho made his show business debut in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he got stranded in Denver, Colorado, when Leroy skipped down. The, uh, he's the youngest. Uh, Gummo joined Groucho in 1907 in Three Nightingales. Groucho had been in a play and done a couple of other small acts. You know, he was a couple of years younger than Groucho. So at that point, when they did the Three Nightingales, Groucho's 17 and Milton's 15. So they both got in around when they were 15. And uh, Harpo came in a little bit later. Um, he was almost 20 when he first got on stage. And Chico had been working as a song plugger and done a little bit of vaudeville without his brothers with a couple of different partners early on. Around 1911, he was with actually with three partners in one summer. Um, he kept going through them. One of his partners was the March Brothers' cousin, Lou Sheen. And he is the partner that was with Chico um, when he made his first news on the front page of a paper in Indiana. And he didn't get on the front page of this newspaper for anything to do with show business. He had apparently met a nice young girl, and when he left town, he decided to take her with him. Yeah, the girl's fiancé and family frowned on that. What was kind of the, the range of ages between Groucho and the youngest one? And was the youngest one Zeppo? All the March Brothers were born between 1887 and 1892, except Zeppo was sort of a surprise in 1901. I didn't realize until recently just how old they were when they finally broke into movies, you know, and just, I mean, Groucho was what, almost 40 years old for uh, Animal Crackers? The thing that is really striking, and this is what really got me interested in their theatrical career early on, is that we first get a look at the Marx Brothers, they're well into their 30s and 40s, and they had been on stage for, you know, 25 years at that point. And so, you know, Groucho started in 1905, and that first movie was shot in 1929. They've had a long career. For many people in vaudeville, their career ended, and they went into another line of work by that point. But the Marx Brothers persevered. They stuck around, and they survived vaudeville more than anything else. They got kicked out of vaudeville. They were blacklisted a couple of times. They, they did not necessarily play by the rules. 
by the time they got their first big break in legitimate theater, they were out of options. They couldn't work in vaudeville anymore. So when sound movies came along, that was a blessing for them. They were in the right place at the right time. But again, they, they were very experienced and had a lengthy stage career. And movies came to them late in life. Now, you mentioned Gummo a little bit earlier. Why was it the four Marx Brothers rather than the five Marx Brothers that we were seeing? There was a point in the summer of 1915 when they were the five Marx Brothers. Uh, they did actually go out on the road, did a tour mostly in the state of Michigan, where they were a quintet. And Minnie's plan always had been for them to be the five Marx Brothers. But Zeppo was the one that they were trying to at least keep in school for a little while, uh, mostly because he was running around the streets of Chicago as a juvenile delinquent. Um, by his own admission, Zeppo was packing a gun when he was about 14, and he was stealing cars, and he was getting in all kinds of trouble. In fact, I have a little piece in the book. There's an incident that happened when they were living in Chicago where a lifeguard was reprimanding Zeppo at a beach, and the other March Brothers came and beat the guy up and got arrested. He was a tough kid. So she tried to get him in the act, and by the time he was really ready, I mean, Gummo wanted out. Gummo never really wanted to be in the act. He was actually a stutterer. He found it very difficult to be on stage, and Groucho helped him a lot. They used to have ways of cueing his line on stage, and he would have alternate vocabulary words to substitute when he got stuck on a word. The guy actually studied the dictionary to be able to do that. So it was very stressful for Gummo being on stage, and he just didn't, want, he didn't enjoy it. Groucho enjoyed it. Harpo made it into a life for himself. He didn't really think he had much talent at the beginning, but he was sort of a, a savant musically, and he could do anything. Um, he just didn't know it when he started. But by the time Zeppo was old enough to really join the act, Gummo was leaving, so he replaced him. But there was that brief moment in 1915 when they did tour as the Five March Brothers. I was always curious about the musical talent because... Yeah, Harpo just being able to play so many instruments and got Chico with his, his piano playing was just uh, amazing. Was that all encouraged by their parents, or, or did they just kind of pick that up as they needed to? Well, they had music in their family. Their grandparents were musical, at least on the mother's side. Not much was ever known about the grandparents and the family on the father's side, but there has been some new research done in that, and that is also in the book. But their grandmother on their mother's side was a yodeling harpist, and their grandfather was a magician. So they were in show business. They always had music around. Minnie had the plan of getting a piano for the family because she thought that piano lessons might keep Chico around the house a little bit because he was always out getting into trouble. And he only took piano lessons for a very short time, and he was a natural. But his main function was to take a piano lesson and then show that lesson to the other boys. And Groucho would watch the piano lesson from the corner of the room and try and pick up whatever he could. So Chico would give secondhand piano lessons to Harpo, and Groucho would pick up what he could pick up. They all had some musical training. There are several articles from the 1920s during the Marx Brothers Broadway period where they refer to Zeppo being a cellist and having studied the cello for many years. There's no indication they ever played it on stage. It might have just been press nonsense, but he probably could. I think the bit and monkey business when the four of them were playing the saxophone, I think they're all really playing it. You know, you see Harpo playing um, a clarinet and coconuts. I mean, they were just incredibly musical. How much of their early stage work, or the, or I should say their shows, got translated into their films? Because I'm pretty sure that at least Animal Crackers, maybe up to what, Horse Feathers, were kind of trotted out on Broadway first before they were filmed? Right. There's bits of a lot of their vaudeville work 
sprinkled through all the films. Animal Crackers and Coconuts were Broadway shows that got turned into films when they made their transition to Hollywood to make original films that hadn't been stage shows. The first one was Monkey Business, which is sort of loosely based on the same idea as their most famous vaudeville show, Home Again. They've just kind of updated it because they're a little older, and there's a slight change in the plot, but not much. I mean, the basic premise of Home Again in a two-act show was uh, they come back from an ocean voyage, and they go have a big party. Basically, that's monkey business. So it's really truly based on Home Again. There are bits in all the movies that come from shows, like Mr. Green's Reception from 1912 was the first show with the four Marx Brothers, which is where they did the famous double piano solo with Harpo and Chico, which turns up in the big store in 1941. And then they did it again on television in their nightclub act. So that piece of material stayed with them pretty much their whole lives. Uh, The knife dropping bit that Harpo does in Animal Crackers originates in Home Again. It's the opening sequence of Home Again. The biology lecture in Horse Feathers is sort of fun in high school, their first comedy act, which they began doing in 1911. You know, they started doing a variation of it in the summer of 1910 when they were a singing act, and it morphed into fun in high school. And that sequence in the classroom at Huxley College in Horse Feathers is right out of fun in high school. Now, how did you learn all that stuff? How did you learn what bits were in what shows? Well, first I start with the books describing it, written by Groucho, or Groucho gave an interview, or Harpo gave an interview, and you could pick up a lot of it that way. Then you start reading the local reviews, and then you read a lot of local reviews, you could piece together most of the show. For certain shows, scripts do survive. The earliest surviving script is a show called On the Balcony from 1921, and that contains a couple of bits that they would use later on. And I'll say she is, has stuff from On the Balcony. So they kept taking stuff from, the popular bits from one show would move into another show. And when they started making movies, they always had that material to draw on. They always had some of the stuff that they knew worked on the stage. And for example, there's a bit called the Theatrical Manager's Office, a sketch that they did starting in 1921 and On the Balcony, which was filmed at Paramount for a promotional film called The House That Shadows Built. You may have seen this little short clip. It's about four minutes long of them doing this almost in completely in rhyme sketch where even Zeppo gets to be funny and have things to do. And it's a great bit. By the time they filmed it at Paramount, they'd done it a couple of thousand times because it was in I'll say she is for roughly a thousand performances. It was in hundreds, hundreds of performances of On the Balcony and On the Mezzanine and they did it in later vaudeville sketches. They just did it all the time and they imitate a performer in that sketch they always would do an imitation of someone and when the show was first written as on the balcony they imitated a guy named joe frisco who's completely forgotten he was a big vaudeville star Uh, joe frisco was so famous at one point in the 1920s that in the great gatsby f scott fitzgerald describes the dancers movements as moving like frisco and now nobody knows who he is by the time the March Brothers were on Broadway, they changed it to an imitation of Gallagher and Sheen, and Sheen being their uncle, Al Sheen. When they went over to England, they did an imitation of Chaplin, and when they were at Paramount, they did an imitation of Chevalier. So that was their all-purpose sketch. I wanted to ask about Zeppel a little bit more, because he sticks out sometimes. It's that whole thing of, 
you know, everybody has such a distinct personality. They all have the props, you know, the cigar or the crazy wigs and the hat and all these things. But poor Zeppo doesn't seem to have a shtick. And I was wondering why that is or if he had one at one point. Well, he never did. And neither did Gummo. Um, Gummo played the juvenile in these early vaudeville shows. And Zeppo just stepped in and took his place. They used to all talk about it in interviews. And they felt sorry for him because there wasn't enough stuff to go for a fourth comedian. And they did, they did need someone to play those scenes off a of Groucho. And many people will make the case that they were never better than when they were a quartet. Because Groucho always needed to have someone to do those scenes with. And even when they moved on to MGM without Zeppo in 1935, they always tried to find an actor to be in that fourth position. Initially, it was Alan Jones. They just worked better as a foursome. But Zeppo didn't have a real comic character because there just wasn't any room for one at that point. But he was pretty damn good. Um, they used to understudy for each other. And if a March brother got sick, they would work out a, a deal where somebody would take his place. It was usually Zeppo. Zeppo played Groucho when Groucho had an appendicitis attack, a, a real appendicitis attack, actually. He, ironically, the, the guy was laid up with appendicitis in Chicago when they were doing a vaudeville act there. And Zeppo stepped in and did Groucho, and nobody really noticed. And the old joke is Groucho realized that no one had noticed and got well in a hurry. Uh, Harpo got sick um, in Kentucky at some point, and Zeppo stepped in and did you know, a single show as Harpo. And then there was a point where Harpo left the act for a few weeks because he was ill, and Zeppo filled in. I would imagine he probably played some rudimentary harp solos during those shows as well. It's quite remarkable, but Zeppo was the uh, the all-purpose March brother in a lot of ways, but most nondescript as far as having a character. Well, yeah, his timing when it came to things like the whole, uh, what was it, the Hadunga? Hungadunga, yes. You left out a Hungadunga. But, you know, it's kind of interesting because they occasionally try and give him more to do, and he always rose to the occasion. He's terrific in monkey business. He's got a really decent role in monkey business, and he does it well. He sings well. There, there have been some things written about Zeppo that, you know, during the period when they were on Broadway, you'd think this guy has a chance to do something really good. There was talk of him leaving the act and going into, like, straight, straight comedy on his own, and he could have done it. But they kept the act together mostly because of their parents. Zeppo would want to leave as early as 1925. He wanted out. There was some talk early on during the Broadway years where Zeppo was going to go on his own and get into real estate. And he had all these plans, but he'd always stay in. Once their parents died, Minnie died in 1929 and Sam died in 1933, Zeppo saw the path and he was on his way out. But while the parents were alive, they would never have broken up the four March brothers. So he was really very loyal in that sense. You were talking about them kind of uh, doubling for each other. I had heard once that Chico and Harpo had switched spots in a show for, uh, for one evening. They've done that a couple of times, but the, the, the favorite story of Maxine March, Chico's daughter, who I, I knew quite well, she was a lovely woman, and she was really funny. Uh, she told the story when they were on tour in 1940 for Go West, testing scenes for the film they were about to make where she was going to all the shows. And the morning shows in these vaudeville tours would basically have drunks and prostitutes and half-empty theater. So she decided to go get her hair done instead of going to the morning show. And she came back to the theater, and she went backstage, and she says, well, what do you think? What? And he turns out, see, I told her she wouldn't notice. And they had switched parts just to see if she'd notice, but she wasn't in the theater. 
There's also a story that when they were doing, uh, I think it was Animal Crackers in Newark, it was reported in um, a magazine that they had switched parts one night just for the hell of it. Uh, you know, they just had fun doing that. And Harpo and Chico could have passed for twins. They really did look quite alike. Yeah, there are times when I've seen clips of them older where I'm just like, I'm not really just looking at the face. I'm like, I'm not really sure who I'm looking at. Chico right went now. on I've Got a Secret, dressed as Harpo. And that was his secret. The secret was that he was Chico. And here, here's a shameless plug. You can actually see that in this uh, DVD set I produced called the Marx Brothers TV Collection. I wanted to ask you about the movies, because I know that your book is more about the vaudeville stuff, well, so I didn't book, want to necessarily... My book actually it. takes... I, I, I have to say this. Uh, I initially set out to write a book strictly about their stage career, and it just didn't seem to be having an ending. And I thought I would end it when Zeppo left, and then there's still some unresolved business with them working on the stage. And then they did the tours in the 40s, you know, in the 30s and 40s for the movies where they were testing scenes. And the only thing that made sense was to have sort of an epilogue that takes them through the end of the team in 1950. So the films are actually covered in the book, just not in the kind of detail that the stage stage acts are. But it is nice that so many of those stage acts just kind of play right into these films. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating for me to know that while I'm watching Coconuts, they were filming that movie while they were doing Animal Crackers on Broadway. So if you want to know what the March Brothers looked like when they were on Broadway, you look at Coconuts, and they would shoot during the day and go do the theater at night, which is an amazing thing to have done. And there's even occasionally a little flub where in Coconuts during the Wyatt Duck scene, Groucho almost calls Chico Ravelli, which is his character name in Animal Crackers, because they were just running back and forth between the studio and the theater. I'm sure that was maddening for them. How much of Duck Soup had already been played on Broadway? Nothing, actually. Duck Soup is completely original. Maybe a, a joke or two got recycled, but the, the entire premise is new. And uh, what, I, what I'll say about Duck Soup that's really misunderstood is the March Brothers didn't leave Paramount after Duck Soup. They left Paramount before Duck Soup. They came back and made it. They were, they were in a bit of a contract squabble with Paramount the details of which are in the book, probably a little bit too detailed to explain quickly now, but they walked off the lot before shooting Duck Soup because they had some disagreements with how their royalties were being paid on previous films. And they came back in a settlement of a dispute to make Duck Soup, but they were trying to make a, a film version of, of the I Sing, a Pulitzer Prize winning play. And they were, they set up an independent company and they walked off of the set off of the lot. They came back and made duck soup. And then since that was a one picture deal and they hadn't resolved all the issues, Zeppo saw his opportunity to leave and the March for the signed with MGM as a trio. It's amazing that that was a wholly original thing because it just flows so well. You know, there's an interesting thing about that. They were working a lot with George Kaufman trying to adapt of the I sing. And one of the, most interesting premises of Duck Soup is the notion that this guy becomes president and starts a war with another country. There was a Kaufman show from a few years earlier called Strike Up the Band, where the premise was this wealthy cheese manufacturer starts a war with Switzerland because the Swiss cheese is just killing us. And they sort of borrowed that idea for Duck Soup. Were the Marx Brothers actually writing this stuff, or were they working with other writers when they came up with these ideas for at least this movie, if not other films? I don't think the Marx Brothers would say that they wrote any of the stuff, but they were deeply involved in the selection process. They selected writers that they liked. 
they knew who they wanted to work with, and they did feed them some ideas for things that they could use from the stage shows and the vaudeville bits. So, for example, when S.J. Perlman and Will Johnstone are writing Monkey Business, these are guys the Marx Brothers really liked. They'd worked with Johnstone on Alsatias, and they were, well, at least Groucho was a big fan of S.J. Perlman. And S.J. Perlman, interestingly enough, is responsible for the most detailed description of Home Again that you can find. He wrote an article in the 1950s about his recollections of seeing Home Again in Providence when he was a teenager. So he was well acquainted with the Marx Brothers, and it's no coincidence that Monkey Business, the film that you know he first worked on with the Marx Brothers, is very derivative of Home Again. And what was their relationship like with uh, their directors? I don't think they would say that they had any sort of close relationship with any of them. Um, I know Groucho despised Sam Wood, the guy who did The Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races. He was just sort of very much in disagreement with his politics, and he just didn't like him. Uh, I think they liked Leo McCary. They recognized how good a director he was on Duck Soup. You know, Groucho always said disparaging things about Robert Flory, one of the two directors on Coconuts. He used to say that he didn't speak a word of English. Uh, he was a Frenchman, but he was perfectly fluent in English. Groucho just said things that weren't necessarily true. You know, Groucho, interestingly, used to disparage Duck Soup. And, you know, they said it was a flop and we got kicked out of Paramount for it. And Thalberg saved us. But the truth is, Duck Soup did rather well. The March Brothers were very successful at Paramount. They left because they couldn't work out their disagreement over the participation contract they had. They had one of the first participation contracts in Hollywood. The Marx Brothers were getting 50% of the profits on monkey business and horse feathers, and they were supposed to get that on duck soup. But Paramount transferred their contract to a newly formed entity within the company, which was against the rules of the contract. So the Marx Brothers walked, and they weren't getting paid properly on the receipts of horse feathers and monkey business. Horse feathers was Paramount's top-grossing film of 1932. The Marx Brothers were supposed to be in for half of the profits, and they're not getting anything. So Groucho looked at that and said, you know, Paramount was a flop. Well, they didn't get the money they were due, but the film was not a flop. On the other hand, they had learned from this contract that when they signed at MGM, instead of getting 50% of the profits, they got 15% of the gross, which did very, very well for them. So it's no surprise that Groucho always said, a night at the opera, today at the race is the best pictures we ever made. He made a lot of money on them. They didn't do very well financially from the Paramount films. When did they start working with Margaret Dumont? Margaret Dumont came to the Marx Brothers through Sam Harris, the man who produced Coconuts and Animal Crackers on Broadway. Margaret Dumont had worked previously with Harris's partner, George M. Cohan, in a show called The Rise of Rosie O'Reilly, which coincidentally was playing in Boston at a theater down the street from where the Marx Brothers were doing Alsatias in Boston. So it was Sam Harris's idea to bring her into the fold to work with the Marx Brothers on the Coconuts. In vaudeville, the Marx Brothers always had that character, that sort of woman who was classier than they were, someone who could be deflated and taken down a peg. And there was a woman who worked in their vaudeville acts for parts of seven seasons with them. She left and came back a couple of times. Her name was Saba Shepard. And she was sort of the missing piece. When she left, they didn't replace her with that standard type of character. They might have had other people play the role here and there. But when Margaret Dumont arrived, that was sort of the completion of something that had been incomplete for a while. So she just fit right into that role because they had been using that concept for years. In Home Again, they had, you know, Groucho's wife was the character, and she would be the one who would be sort of the Dumont character, what we now know to be the Dumont character. So 
they can thank Sam Harris for bringing her in. And of course, she stuck around and made seven pictures besides the two Broadway shows. I'm glad that they got rid of the wife character just because the guys being the consummate bachelors all the time and going after the women is such an important part of the act. You know, there was a different set of mores, I guess, in that period. In Home Again, Groucho's married, and the basic plot of the show is that he has this party because he's flirting with a girl he met on the boat, and he's trying to get some time with her. So he has to invite these lowlifes that he met on the boat, Harpo and Chico, to come to the party so he could spend time with the girl he met on the boat. So he's married. He's chasing a girl. And incidentally, Gummo played his son in Home Again, and then Zeppo took that part. Did they ever run into problems with the uh, Hayes office? Oh, yes. They ran into problems even in vaudeville. The manager's reports of their vaudeville shows would get sent to the home office of the Keith Albee circuit in Providence. And those have all been preserved. They're in a wonderful library at the University of Iowa where they keep all those papers. And I went out there and spent some time with them. And they will have documentation of the jokes that various cities made them remove because they were a little too racy. There's a joke in one of their vaudeville bits where Harper would crawl under an area rug and peer out and tell a woman to come under the rug with him by pulling his finger towards her. And they said, remove the bit of business with Harpo under the rug. You know, that was too racy. When they were making their films at Paramount, it was what we would call the pre-code era. Although the code was in existence, it didn't really get seriously enforced until, I guess, the spring of 1934. So all their Paramount films had been completed and in release. But when the films got reissued in the later 30s, like in 1936, Animal Crackers got reissued and got mangled, as did Horse Feathers. I know that there were certain cuts made where the films have never appeared quite the same, and I understand that now they will be with the new restorations that are coming. But the code restrictions on them initially, for example, things in the script where they would send them for review and it would say, take this out. I reviewed some of that stuff. And some of it's just in the film. They just didn't listen to them. You know, there's uh, censorship notes at the Motion Picture Academy Library for Monkey Business, where you see what they were told to take out, and the stuff is in the film. I don't think there was a serious enforcement until 34. So, you know, there's a lot of scholarship on that. I haven't done much, most of it, but I'm just flabbergasted to see that some of the things that were considered racy you know, by that point, were just normal stuff that they would have in their shows in 1917. Now, are you involved with these restorations at all? Okay, I'm involved with it because I'm helping them do the extras, and I'm going to be interviewed, and I'm going to do some audio commentaries. I haven't done them yet, and I'm scheduled. I'm scheduled to see the restorations next week, and I am told that there are certain things that have been restored. If they're not there and this airs, I'll sound like an idiot. <laughs> so. So I can tell you what I know, but I, you know, I haven't actually seen it with my own eyes, as they say. And you know, as Chico once said, who are you going to believe me or your own eyes? But I'll tell you one thing that I do know is supposedly restored. For the 1936 reissue of Animal Crackers, there's a line in the middle of the song, Hooray for Captain Spaulding, that was removed. And it was not removed delicately. It's sort of like an edit that looks like it was done with a chainsaw. In the middle of the song... There's a line where someone sings, he is the only white man who covered every acre. And Groucho leans in and sings, I think I'll try and make her, referring to Dumont. The I think I'll try and make her line has been missing from the film since 1936. It'll be back, from what I'm told. Now, who's putting out your Northwestern University Press, they're the brave people putting out my book, uh, Four of the Three Musketeers, The Marx Brothers on Stage. It's a big book. It's loaded with a lot of previously unknown information about the Marx Brothers. 
And I like to think about vaudeville in general. I've done a lot of research on the business of vaudeville, and it really helps to understand the Marx Brothers if seen through the prism of the vaudeville business. It makes a lot of their stuff make more sense. Like, why did they do this? Why were they kicked out of vaudeville and so forth? So I think it's going to open up a lot of eyes about why things happened to certain performers, not just the Marx Brothers. It's also going to contain a lot of very rare illustrations and some photographs that have never been published before from family albums, going back to a photograph of the Schoenberg family taken in Prussia in 1876. It's got a picture of the Marx Brothers' mother as a very small girl. It takes us all the way through their career up to, up to 1950. Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm really looking forward to checking it out. to see every film they made. And again, in the days before home video, 
that was not easy. Uh, you know, you, you, well, I would search the TV guide every week when it came with a yellow, a yellow highlighter pen, and any time I saw a Marx Brothers movie, they did pop up now and again. I would mark it with my highlighter pen and sometimes stay up way past my bedtime or sometimes even um, feign uh, illness and play hooky from school to stay home to watch it if it was on during the day. I think it took maybe two years to see all 13 feature films. Also, I was lucky enough that, I mean, I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in Fullerton. And there was uh, an old movie, a revival house in Anaheim. I think it was called the Old Movie Theater, which was across the street from Disneyland. And I wasn't old enough to drive, but my brother was, and uh, my mother would occasionally take me. So I saw a few films as they're meant to be seen, as everybody should see them at, at, at one point, in a movie theater with, a, with an appreciative audience. So I did get to see some of the films that way, and um, many of them on TV. And of course, had I known at the time that the day would come when I could own copies of these films on DVD and now on Blu-ray for like you know, 10 bucks a pop and watch them whenever I wanted, that would have seemed unreal. And of course, that is the case now. And, and, um, and I do still occasionally go to see them when they play special events and in, in movie theaters. But Coconuts was the beginning. So, uh, and then soon after that, perhaps within a week or two, I saw Duck Soup, which was a really good March Brothers film. And then I was absolutely hooked. I, um, you know, just had to see all the films. There were a few books out at the time. Richard and Nobile's Why a Duck Was Out. Uh, I think Arthur Marks had written Son of Groucho. Uh, there may have been one or two others. Of course, then, you know, you, as, you know, this is the same story you ask any Marx Brothers nut. Approximately, approximately my age, give or take a few years, they all have the same story of, you know, hitting the used bookstores and collecting, you know, those earlier books like Harpo Speaks, and, uh, you know, Groucho's various books and autobiographies. And so, yeah, it was seeing the films. It was getting all the books. It's quite an obsession for me through junior high school, through high school, into college. But finally making my first film, which was my documentary on the Marx Brothers, the Marx Brothers in a Nutshell, in 1982, finally helped to sort of exorcise that um, obsession and I could sort of get back to a normal life after that. That's one thing to love the movies. It's another thing to to go farther and to read the books. But it's it's to the point of obsession when you're deciding, okay, I'm going to make a movie about these guys. What was kind of that moment for you to say, I'm going to make a documentary about the Marx Brothers? Well, I'd always loved movies and from the time I was very young had an idea that I, that I wanted to be involved with them. You know, the Marx Brothers sort of cemented that desire. And when I was very young, I was actually attending Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa, California, which actually had a, it was a community college, but they had a very good film department. They still do, as far as I know. Um, I started to think hard about what I might do as a, a first project or how, how I might break into the business. And at that time, there was no definitive Marx Brothers documentary. And, you know, I wanted to fill that gap because I love them so much. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I can do it. And I was, it was a very precocious thought because I was 18, I guess. And I had this idea that I would make a Marx Brothers, you know, like a PBS-style Marx Brothers documentary. And I wound up doing it. It took four years. I was still, now it, it's sort of shocking to think about it. But at the time, I didn't think it was any big deal. I was 22 when that film was completed. 
but I just made it because I thought, you know, a documentary would be sort of a good way into the business, so to say. Again, uh, I was a fan, and I wanted to see a Marx Brothers documentary, so if no one else was going to make one, I figured it was up to me. Now, I know that this was one of the first, if not the first, Marx Brothers documentary. What kind of challenges were you facing, especially as an 18-year-old trying to make this documentary? I had gone to USC for three semesters, but was not admitted into their cinema school. I went as a non... I was accepted into the university, but not into the cinema department. So I took a few film courses available to non-majors, but in any event, my joke was that here I was trying to get this film made, and my my only uh, you know experience so far had been you know a three-time rejection from the USC Cinema Department. Here I was trying to get a few hundred thousand dollars out of PBS or anybody who would sort of finance the stream. So back in the early days, I'd be making. I had a uh, I boarded a room in a house in the Miracle Mile district in Los Angeles, and I just you know I was a I was a kid. I was a teenager in in, in this room, and I remember I would be calling up executives at the studios, you know, trying to get permission to use the film clips or whatever business I was taking care of. And, um, oh, I, I would like with one hand be typing on the typewriter, just gibberish while I was talking. So it would look like I had an assistant or that I was working out of an office. I found a way to sort of unplug my phone in a way that would keep the connection going, but it would sound like I'd be putting somebody on hold just to sort of feign, again, that I was in some sort of working environment when, in fact, I was just a nerdy little 18-year-old in his, in his uh, dingy little room in the Miracle Mile district. So that's sort of what I was up against. Interestingly, the financing of the film wound up being not the biggest challenge. Uh, I did put together what is now as, as detailed a, um, a treatment or a proposal as I've ever put together for the film, which was very well thought out and very articulate for the youngster that I was, and I put together a budget. Now, a lot of this involved research. I remember getting books about how to budget for films, because I'd never made one before, and even getting prices from rental houses, what it would cost to rent a camera, and the various equipment, and to buy film stock. It was all film back then. So I put together a budget and a proposal, um, submitted it to PBS, and they got back to me pretty early on saying that they wanted to do it. They just recently produced a documentary on Fred Astaire that did very well for them that they used for their pledge periods where they you know, put in the, the breaks and they you know, beg for money during the breaks, and that did very well for them. So they thought, oh, that's good sort of mass audience entertainment for their pledge period. So they thought the Marx Brothers film would be would sort of fit right in. So they actually got back to me very early on and said they were interested. And now I thought, well, how do I, how do, I do this? But the big challenge was actually getting the film clips. The Paramount films were controlled, still are, by Universal. MGM still retained their own library. So most of the films were with Universal and MGM and then a few stray ones like Room Service and, and the later films, the last few films. We're at different places. So that was the tricky part, was convincing the studios, primarily Universal and MGM, to let me use not just 30 seconds of clips or, you know, a minute of clips, but several several minutes of clips. I mean, the films were going to make up a huge chunk of the documentary. And at the time, Universal and MGM were the two studios most notorious for not letting anybody use their clips. MGM had great success with That's Entertainment, and that was sort of the beginning of them figuring out, hey, there's value to this stuff, to this archival material. 
And if anyone's going to use the material, we'll use it. Why should we license our clips out to anybody else? Either they said no, or they would, you know, in the few cases where they did license the material, you know, the licensing fees were exorbitant, much more than I could handle out of a PBS budget. I got a lot of help from the guys who were sort of my uh, godfathers in the business, uh, Jack Rollins, Charlie Joffe, and their partners, um, Buddy Mora, Larry Bresner, David Steinberg, not the comedian, but another David Steinberg. I'd gotten a job for them as a gopher, you know, bringing back lunch and going to Xerox and going to the bank and all that. And they were quite fond of me, and they they heard about this project that I was trying to make and that I was having trouble getting the film clips. And, and the late, great Charles Joffe got on the phone call to the key executives at both Universal and MGM and got them to meet with me. And he opened up the door for them to at least sort of hear my pitch. And they did. And I finally got the clips from them at a reasonable Right, because of those guys, I was able to finally, you know, make the film. And and basically, a year had passed since PBS said they wanted to uh, do it, and uh, I finally got back to them after this hiatus and said, "Hey, guys, I've I've got the clips now. I can do it." And you know, they still wanted it, so we were uh, off to the races. Now I have a very nerdy question for you when it comes to this stuff. I'm I'm curious, are you making now dupes of these clips or how are you getting these? And when you're doing your editing, are you doing it all on film or are you actually now using like one inch tape and doing editing you know, on video? That's a very good question of which three people, well, let's say two out of the four people listening to this right now will actually be interested in the answer. Yeah, this was, of course, before everything was digitized and um, you were working with actual film. And But it was right on the cusp of things starting to go from film to video for editorial purposes. So that switch from film to video, I swear it happened literally in the middle of our post-production process. We initially started making uh, 16 dupe prints. I can't remember what the source was. I, don't, I guess the studio... The studio must have loaned us 16 prints, of which we made dupe positive 16-millimeter work prints. And we were cutting on, was it a moviola? No, we had a flatbed. We were cutting on a 16-millimeter flatbed and physically cutting and taping film, as, as we did back then. But somewhere in there, we were sort of hip to what was going on now, which was basically video transfers on a you know telecine machine to really get nerdy um <laughs> yes it was one inch you mastered on one inch and then you would dub onto three quarter inch and we actually rented one of the early three quarter inch uh decks it was a it was a sony ecs 90 <laughs> if you really want detail my editor, actually Joe Adamson, we'll talk more about him, but Joe wrote the best book on the Marx Brothers films, Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Zeppo. Joe was hired as my co-writer, actually my, my writer. I mean, I did a little bit of writing, but it was mainly Joe. And then he was hired as the editor uh, because Joe had had some film editing experience. But in the middle of all this, somebody had to come in and train us on the, um, on the offline system, on the convergence system so that we could, we could edit it. And we had an assistant editor named Michael Solomon, I think I found at USC. So, yeah, so in the middle of all this, we wound up transferring to one-inch and three-quarter-inch dubs, and then we started to, we, we offlined. We, we did an offline cut on three-quarter-inch, and then for our final online, went back to our one-inch and edited that way. As a matter of fact, for even one more level of detail, I think when we started filming the interviews, which were 16 millimeter, we would get like uh, colored time 
prints, and then we transferred from the film to the one inch. And then somewhere in there, I remember the, the last two interviews I shot were with Woody Allen and Dick Cavett, which were like in December of 81. And at that point, somebody showed us that you could actually transfer from your negative, your 16, in other words, you never had to make a print. You could go from 16 negative to one inch. So for those interviews, we did that, and it did look appreciably better. It was too late to go back and do the others that way, but yeah, the technology was just changing right under our noses within those, whatever, seven or eight months that we were editing the film. The technology kept changing. We tried to keep up with it. So, you know, I look at the film now, which is, you know, on, available on DVD, but only through my website. And, of course, I look at it and I think, oh, now if, you know, we went back and did high-def transfers of the films, not to mention the, the interviews that we shot, everything would look so much better. That's, you know, a slight disappointment for me as the creator of the film, one of the creators of the film, but the content still holds up, even if technically it looks a little bit uh, dated. What was it like getting the interviews for these? I mean, it sounds like the lion's share of the work was getting the clips, but I'm sure it couldn't have been that easy to get these interviews either. Historically, for my own films, if you go to the right people who have something to say about the subject, they're happy to do it. Nobody really gets concerned about being paid. I mean, some films, I've been in a position to give everybody some sort of honorarium. Some I haven't been. But that never seems to be um, a big point with them. They're, they tend to be happy to do it. Now, the great thing about doing this Marx Brothers film in 19... I mean, we were basically shooting in 1981. The film came out in 82. So many people were still alive back then. I mean, Maury Riskin, who co-wrote with George S. Kaufman, Coconuts and Animal Crackers on the Broadway stage. We're talking the 1920s, and both those films, of course, later, both those stage shows later made into films. Maury Riskin was alive. George Folsey, who was the cameraman on Coconut. Robert Pyrosh, who was a co-writer in uh, A Night at the Opera and A Day at the Races. Chico Marx's widow, Betty Marx, was alive. We filmed an interview with her. We, For just editorial reasons, we wound up not using it, but all the children, I mean, Arthur Marx, now deceased, Groucho's son, Chico's daughter, Maxine, who became a very good friend of mine, now deceased. I mean, every, everybody was around. Margaret Irving, who was in both the stage play and the film version of Animal Crackers, is, is in the film. We got a lot of key people who were around, who within the next decade would be long gone. Harpo Marx's son, Bill, is still around and still healthy and vital and, and lucid. Uh, he was, you know, very young at the time. But the key people, the first-hand witnesses, let's say the colleagues, are all long gone now. Irving Brecker was one of the last to go. He lived, I don't know if he hit 100. If not, he, he got close to 100. Irving Brecker, who co-wrote some of the later films, uh, Go West and At the Circus, was around. He's in the film. Nat Perrin, who was a writer on... Um, I believe Horse Feathers, but yeah, Horse Feathers, I believe, and, and Duck Soup, he, he's in the film. So the interviews were the most satisfying parts of it, just getting these key people whose names, from being a Marx Brothers fan, I had heard and read over and over again, and to finally meet them and to put a camera on them and get them, get them to reminisce for me on camera was really uh, quite thrilling. Some of your interview subjects, were they helping you out as far as archival material? And I seem to remember some like early footage of the Marx Brothers. I mean, is this what they were, be able, they were able to provide to you? Not so much. I mean, in some cases, people would have photos that they would loan us. I know that George Fenneman, who was Groucho's announcer on You Bet Your Life, of course, during his later radio and TV years, had an outtake reel 
by the way, so much of the stuff now you would just find on YouTube, but it was pretty hard to, to nail down back then. Research was, so, was such a different animal before the Internet. Information you can find out now in about 30 seconds would take weeks to nail down back then. And getting, you know, a lot of these, you know, aside from just the feature films, you knew where to get the feature films, but, you know, we wanted all kinds of newsreel and television stuff, which was scattered all over the place, and, you know, any kind of, you know, rare footage or, or footage that just hadn't been seen again and again was very hard to track down. And, of course, we wanted as much of that as possible for the film. And what was that first cut of the film like? <laughs> well, you've got Joe Adamson and, and myself, both who are huge Marx Brothers fans. So, of course, we just loved everything. Well, we've got to have that. Well, we have to have that scene. Oh, we can't make a film without this scene. So I think the first cut of the film came in at a swift 17 hours. It took like, you know, three or four days just to watch a cut of the film, something that would have to eventually be cut down to... Uh, under two hours. You know, the name of the film, I had the, I had the title in my head from the beginning, which was The Marx Brothers in a Nutshell. So we used to joke about that 17-hour cut that we would just call it The Marx Brothers in an immense nutshell. So we just whittled down from there, whittled down, whittled down. And of course, as I say, this was in the early days of our cutting. This was all 16 millimeter and physically, you know, cutting things out of the film. And maybe after our 17-hour cut, we wound up at a 12-hour cut and then an eight-hour cut and, you know, just got it down from there. I should say my method with my documentaries has changed now because I learned a lesson from that one. So any given cut of one of my, my films now is not going to be running length, but it's going to be fairly reasonable. I try never to go over, say, you know, two and a half or three hours with even the most expansive cut so that, you know, if, if you have a long cut for anything else that you put in, something has to go because realistically, you know what your final running time is going to be. In this case, we just threw everything in that we liked. And Joe and I were big Marx Brothers fans. We liked everything. So every, everything was in there. And then, as I say, we just whittled it down from there. From what I understand, it was one of the top-rated shows ever on PBS. Is that right? Yeah, when the Marx Brothers film aired, now this is before all the you know the huge viewership that you know like Ken Burns gets for his stuff. This was 1982, but when we premiered in 1982, the Marx Brothers film wound up the I remember specifically the 22nd highest rated film in the whole history of the PBS network. And the funny thing is, you know, I, I'm still a relatively young man. I was so young when I started. I was 22 when I did the Marx Brothers film, but I, I've been at this long enough where I've outlived several generations of PBS executives who have come and gone. When we were publicizing the Woody Allen documentary for American Masters in 2011, and I was sort of handing over a lot of information, biographical information about myself, I included that fact that my first film for PBS on the Marx Brothers became the 22nd highest rated program. They said, oh, we don't have any record of this. I said, well, you'll have to take my word for it. It's it's true. And they said, well, we, we can't find, I mean, are you, uh, we don't know that you're not just making that claim. I said, why would I make a claim like that? I'm not that aggrandizing to make up something like that. And then I actually went through some old scrapbooks that I had. And there, in fact, was the page that was sent to me by PBS way back then with a congratulatory note. I was 22 years old, and it was the 22nd highest rated film in PBS history. So it's a good year for 22. You must have just been over the world with this. Well, it was thrilling to finally get this film 
made. I mean, it was the, the launch of my career. I was very young, and uh, I was thrilled to be able to pay tribute to the Marx Brothers. And, you know, I've done a number of documentaries since. I haven't been that prolific, but I've done whatever, half a dozen or so. And the subjects have all been artistic or cultural influences or inspirations to me, mostly comedic. Um, I've been working on a film on Kurt Vonnegut now, who I consider a great American humorist, although it'd be hard to make the case from being a comedian per se, although you could do it. Um, but, you know, the Marx Brothers, W.C. Fields, Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce, um, Woody Allen. So all of, my, all of my films are very personally gratifying in that, um, you know, I'm paying tribute to these people whose work has meant so much to me. But the Marx Brothers were my first loves. You know, I discovered them when I was... 13, 14 years old. You're doing this documentary back in the, uh, the the early 80s. Here it is, 2016, and still a viable topic for discussion. Still something that you know I feel more people should be familiar with the Marx Brothers. That's why I'm doing this podcast. Why do you think that it is, the, that they have this staying power for, gosh, almost a, a century now? For me, all it boils down to is that the films are still great, that they're still funny. And maybe that is the only answer. Maybe everything else is just, um, you know, bloviating. Just like I love Kurt Vonnegut and I love Woody Allen. I'm the first to say that not all of his books are great. Not all of Woody Allen's films are great. Certainly with the Marx Brothers, there are films that aren't great. I'd say out of their 13 features, there's really maybe seven, maybe even six, six or seven that are films I could watch over and over again virtually at any time. They're that good. And the rest, you know, uh, I can take or leave. The fact that there's still interest in them all these years later, with so little output, when you look at somebody like Chaplin or Keaton, who had years and years of silent films, or Laurel and Hardy, who did silence and sound films, and, and you know, I, I, I don't know what the tally is, but maybe maybe hundreds or, or, or close to it. And the Marx Brothers, 13 features, you know, five, six, or seven that are really, really worthwhile. And then, of course, you know, there are other things. Groucho had a whole second career with You Bet Your Life on the radio and TV, which is, you know, that stuff is still available. But, you know, some things hold up and some things don't. My feeling is that if you read short pieces by, you know, the great literary humorists of the 20s, say um, Robert Benchley, S.J. Perlman, Dorothy Parker, you know, any number of them, well, not any number, you know, a handful, you know, that stuff is still fresh. There's some of those things that you can read out loud to people and you have no idea that they were written you know, close to 100 years ago, some of these things. I mean, we're going to be in the 2020s in, what, four years. Um, and they just reach through the decades. They reach through the century. And you don't have to compromise or meet them halfway and say, oh, I can see how this would have been funny, you know, 80, 90 years ago. They're still funny. And then there are things that don't make it. I mean, Eddie Cantor was as big a box office draw in his day as anybody. I mean, hugely popular. But, you know, you watch Eddie Cantor movies now, and I'm not that familiar with his output, but the things I've seen, it's like, oh, that's that's clever, that's cute. I can see why depression audiences went to see that. But I'm not hysterical. I'm not laughing. Um, I just saw Duck Soup 
uh, the other night at uh, the Aero Theater in Santa Monica. In fact, I introduced it along with uh, coconuts on a double bill. And these were these new um, sort of um, um, high-def um, you know, digital prints that have been recently made. And again, with an appreciative audience, I mean, people are just laughing. I mean, the, the writers were great. It's the combination. I was just saying this in a, recently in a contemporary context about Seinfeld, about what I think made Seinfeld a really great television show. It was just you had really wonderful writing matched up with the perfect actors to deliver. You know, the actors would have been nothing about the writing, and the writing would not have been nearly as good without those actors. And I think in the case of the the people whose work has really lived on, again, the obvious ones, the Marx Brothers, Laurel and Hardy, W.C. Fields, Chaplin, Keaton, you know, Lloyd to some degree, hugely, hugely talented individuals, most of them stage-trained for years and years. I mean, you know, by the time the Marx Brothers made their first film, Coconuts, in 1929, Zeppo aside for the time being, Groucho at 39 was the youngest. So they were all middle-aged, but they had been on the stage. I mean, Groucho first took to the stage when he was 15. So by the time he was almost 40, I mean, think of all the the stage training he had under his belt. And and so some of it's that. Some, Some of it, I think, is genetic. I think some people are just maybe naturally born gifted comedians and gifted clowns. There's no way... There's no way to explain W.C. Fields' genius other than he was he was born a genius or somehow became one. I mean, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, each good on their own, but together, you can't touch that. And, of course, that was Leo McCary who put them together, who directed Duck Soup, our, our alleged topic of the evening. Uh, and, again, great, great writers. The directors, Leo McCary, who directed Duck Soup, was probably the closest thing to really great, you know, seasoned comedy director that Marx Brothers ever had. You know, the directors of some of those early films like Robert Flory, Victor Herman, who did Coconuts and Animal Crackers, respectively, weren't great comedy directors. Norman MacLeod became a very good comedy director. And then they wound up with Leo McCary on Duck Soup, who had a strong comic pedigree. He was the director of numerous silent films, film shorts for, for Hal Roach, comedy shorts. And it was, as I said, it was his idea to put Laurel and Hardy together, and he wrote and supervised the direction on on many of their films. So he was a he was a real comedy guy. So they lucked out there. But you know, for a lot of those Marx Brothers directors, there wasn't much to do other than just stage the action and figure out where to put the cameras and and all that, because those films are propelled just by the genius of those guys, and when they had their best writers. And of course, after Irving Falberg died. Uh, in the middle of production on A Day at the Races for MGM 1937, their films fell off because MGM no longer hired the top-notch writers for them. And, and you know, uh, Irving Brecker and any number of those uh, people were, you know, wonderful comedy writers, but how do you compete with, you know, George S. Kaufman, who was the great Broadway comedy writer of his day, you know, great wits like Arthur Sheikman and, and uh, uh, S.J. Perlman and, and any number of these people uh, who wrote for the Marx Brothers. So the films fell off, but at, at their best, especially when they were younger and more youthful and full of energy and full of beans, so to speak, um, those films are just they're just great. They were great when I discovered them. 
they were great when they were made. They were great when I discovered them in the early 70s, and they're, they're, they're great now. So uh, I think that's why people are interested in them, because anything, you know, a few things last that long, especially comedy, when you think about how quickly tastes in comedy change. You know, you look at, you look at sitcoms from the 80s or the 90s, and you go, God, people laughed at this, and that was only 30, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But for something to hold up, you know, 80 years, 90 years in some cases, it's, it's nothing short of miraculous. So we revere those people who managed to pull that off as, as well we should. What was the Marx Brothers relationship like with those writers? I mean, was it kind of a, a back and forth kind of thing? Because I imagine that they didn't necessarily have writers when they were working on the Broadway stage, or it could be completely wrong. Their first Broadway show was uh, a review show called Alsatias. By review, I mean, you know, sketches and, and musical numbers without any real through, through line of a plot. And as a lot of Marxists out there know, um, uh, Alsatias was just restaged in New York. Uh, a, a Marx fiend by the name of, I want to say his name is Noah Diamond, I think that's it, just revised it off-Broadway uh, for, for a limited run. So it was a way for contemporary audiences to see it. I think Will Johnstone was a writer for that. I'm, I'm my Alsatia's uh, history is not uh, freshest in my mind, but but sure. I mean, after that, they did The Coconuts, which was uh, George Kaufman and Maury Riskin, Animal Crackers, the same two writers, and then they came out to Hollywood and and um, you know assembled really great comedy writers of the time for their for their Hollywood movies up through uh, from Monkey Business. Uh, Horse Feathers and Duck Soup at at, uh, at Paramount, and then Night of the Opera and Day of the Races at MGM, as I mentioned. Um, yeah, for uh, on Broadway, uh, they had great writers, and and I don't know about the other brothers, only because I don't think there's a lot on record. But we know that Groucho highly respected writers. I mean, he knew that. Uh, I mean, Groucho had a great ability to ad lib and to you know, improvise and to just be funny. I mean, Groucho was just naturally funny. He could, you know, in conversation, people who knew him, who hung out with him, you know, he had them in, in stitches, just if you were a pal of his hanging out at Hillcrest Country Club or whatever. He certainly didn't need writers to be funny, but for those movies, when they had the best writers, Groucho was very appreciative of what they did. He wasn't one of those people who acted like he was making it up. And later on, when they sort of had second-string writers, if that, uh, for those later movies, Groucho was very disappointed that they, they didn't have the best writers. And when they did films that weren't great, Groucho knew it. And there's all kinds of correspondence of him writing to friends of his saying, well, you know, they put together another turkey for us. And, you know, why well, I haven't given this up yet, I'll never know. That sort of thing. So, yeah, when the writing was sharp, when they had great people, he, 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 really, um, he really idolized good writing. A lot of the Marx Brothers films feature musical acts, um, you know, which is kind of natural when you have such great musicians as as Harpo and Chico. But I was curious, is that kind of a holdover from the Broadway stuff, or is that kind of just the the flavor of the day that you would have a musical break inside of whatever, you know, the feature film that you were doing? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, it, it really, you mentioned Broadway, but it really goes back to, to vaudeville. Back when they were young and just sort of figuring out who they were, people loved musical numbers, you know, along with their comedy or whatever else they were getting. In fact, the Marx Brothers really started out as ostensibly a musical act. 
Groucho was singing on stage before he was doing anything. And uh, in their various incarnations, brothers coming and going at one time or another, and other people who were not Marxists joining the act, and, you know, they were singing in uh, quartets or quintets or whatever and doing harmonies and that sort of thing. That was just a very big thing back in the day. So they really started out as a musical act and eventually incorporated more and more comedy into their act until they became first and foremost comedians who would still sometimes do a little music. And audiences of the day wanted (laughs) music along with their comedy or whatever else they were getting. And the fact that Chico was a wonderful piano player and of course, we all know those little piano tricks of his, shooting the keys and, and that sort of thing, which, you know, just audiences love that stuff. And Harpa was a self-trained harpist. That's no small deal. I mean, you look around and find out, how, however, find out how many self-trained harpists you can find. There's not a lot of them. And the harp is so typically thought of as, as, as a, uh, some, uh, a, a woman's instrument. I don't know how many male harp players there are. Maybe there are quite a few, but it, it's always thought of as a you know, a female uh, an instrument played by a woman. So to have this male harp player, the crazy guy who didn't speak, it was just this, uh, so odd and so entertaining. So, so yeah, so the, so the Chico's piano and, 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 and Harpo's harp and whatever, a funny song by Groucho, these became very popular parts of their early performances and, you know, stayed with them through their careers. And by the time they were, you know, coconuts and animal crackers, people expected that. And even now, when you when you see the films in a theater with an appreciative audience, you would tend to think, well, people just want the comedy, and you know, we don't need to take a break for the piano or the harp number. But people still love them. I mean, again, I I, I, I saw a couple of Marx Brothers films just recently in a theater, and, and you know, the harp and piano numbers sort of bring the house down. Duck Soup, which is sort of considered the quintessential Marx Brothers film by many fans, myself included, I suppose. It's an anomaly in that sense, in that there is no harp number, there is no piano number. You don't miss them because the the pace of the film is so fast that you know it's the next day before you look back and say, "Hey, wait a minute." <laughs> um, now there are musical numbers, but the musical numbers in Duck Soup are highlights of the film, uh, and these are songs written by Bert Kalmar and Harry Ruby, who were friends of the Marxes and had been with them since um, Animal Crackers. And famously wrote, you know, Hooray for Captain Spaulding, which became from Animal Crackers, but would become Groucho's signature song and the theme of You Bet Your Life. You know, Groucho was a huge Gilbert and Sullivan fan. He was obsessed with Gilbert and Sullivan, the way I and many other people are obsessed with the Marx Brothers. So he he had all their records. He played them again and again, much to the irritation of his wife, knew all the songs and sang along with them. So he was thrilled to have Colmar and Ruby write these very Gilbert and Sullivan-esque type songs for the for the Broadway shows and the films. And if you think of, you know, Hooray for Captain Spaulding or whatever it is, I'm Against It from Horse Feathers or um, Just Wait Till I Get Through With It from Duck Soup, these are very Gilbert and Sullivan-esque songs. And even later, uh, Lydia the Tattooed Lady, which was not Colmar and Ruby, but um, Yip Harburg and, um, oh, I'm going to forget the co-writer's name. Someone's, someone is screaming it out loud right now, listening to this. But uh, again, Lady the Tattoo Lady, very Gilbert and Sullivan-esque. So Groucho would have his songs to sing, and, and Harpo and Chico would have their musical numbers, and uh, that sort of completed the piece. Now, later when they made films for MGM, even I, if I'm watching the DVD, I'm happy to fast-forward through 
the musical numbers sung by other people, uh, especially once it gets to like uh, Kenny Baker and Florence Rice and at the circus and they're singing Two Blind Loves. Ugh, boy, thank, thank God for the fast-forward button. And a lot of the other films, the, the, the numbers by the, by the ingenues in um, uh, Animal Crackers are okay. I find the, the, the songs, and this is Irving Berlin who wrote the music for Coconuts, the songs by, who is it, uh, Oscar Shaw, is that his name? Oscar Shaw and Mary Eaton, I think, are the ingenues. Oh, I still know this all these years later. I don't know. Some, something's sticking in my head. But um, oh, the songs that they sing in there, When My Dreams Come True, oh, by the third time they you know, reprise that song, I'm ready to blow my brains out. Um, but if it's a Marx Brothers musical number, you know, it's 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 great. In Duck Soup, there's that, you know, Fredonia's Going to War number, which is amazing. And and in fact, when Woody Allen did Han and Her Sisters, which was maybe 1984 or thereabouts, um, if you remember that film at all, Woody Allen's character in the film is feeling suicidal. And he's gotten some bad news from his, his uh, uh, doctor. He thinks he has a brain tumor, winds up that he doesn't, but in any event, he's, he's just thinking about life and what's the point and what's the purpose, and he's thinking maybe he'll blow his brains out. And he ducks into a movie theater, <laughs> and he sees duck soup, no pun intended, he ducked into the theater. And um, as we're watching the movie, the, the, the clip that he's watching is, is, the, um, is the musical number from Duck Soup, Fredonia's Going to War. And he's watching that on screen, and he's thinking, no, life is full of misery and terrible things and and uh, unexplainable horrors, but there's good stuff, too. There's this. He's watching the Marx Brothers film, and it's what turns it around for him. It's what makes him realize that there's some things in life that make it worth living. And um, that's uh, that's the musical number from Duck Soup that he chooses as, as, as the moment for his realization. Of course, in Manhattan, he also mentions, includes Groucho Marx on his list of uh, things that make life worth living. And boy, the Marx Brothers would surely be on, on, on my list if I were to compile one. Would you say that Duck Soup is your favorite of the Marx Brothers films? I just think because, uh, again, I do like the pace of it. I, I like that uh, I just like that from beginning to end, there's, there's hardly a, a breath in it. Um, you know, again, you've got Leo McCary directing. There are just so many, uh, so many great bits in the film. There's there's the mirror sequence, um, which is, for all intents and purposes, like a silent movie sequence between Groucho and Harpo. There's I mentioned the musical numbers. Oh my God, all the stuff with Edgar Kennedy and 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 uh, doing battle with uh, Harpo and and Chico. He's got the lemonade stand and. Um, you know, they've got their peanut stand. There, there's just one scene after another where you say, oh, my God, that's right, this is in the film, too. Oh, what? Oh, oh my, this is in it, too. I mean, just one classic scene after another. And, you know, it's all subjective. Somebody else can love A Day at the Races or At the Circus or Horse Feathers Best, and I love all of those films. There's always something to, to recommend them. But Duck Soup, you know, the dialogue, all of this stuff with Margaret Dumont at the beginning of the film, and it's just the Marx Brothers firing on all cylinders.
want to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell me a little bit of your background and how you got interested in the Marx Brothers? I'm so old that I got interested. I can tell you I got interested in the Marx Brothers when major studio films started coming on television. When television started, no major studios would let allow their films to be shown on TV except Republic, who licensed all their films for television and went out of business. And then RKO went out of business, and they turned everything over to something called the C&C Television Corporation. So the RKO films got on with new titles. So when Citizen Kane and, and other RKO films were restored, they had to go back and find the original titles, which had all been chopped off of them. It was a while before, but at one point, they finally decided, okay, MGM, Universal, Paramount, all the other studios, uh, allowed their films to go on TV. Paramount sold their pre-48 films to Universal at that point. But all of a sudden, these old films came on TV, and my dad was a Marx Brothers fan, and uh, the big store came on at 11 o'clock, and that was past my bedtime. But it turned out that the reason they told me that was because they didn't want my brother to raise a fuss. If, if, if I was allowed to see Big Store, he would have insisted on that happening to him too or something equivalent so they they stealthily came up to our room at uh, at 11 and said come on down so i saw a big store and believe it or not big store which i wrote very negatively about in the book was the first mark brothers film i saw uh and i enjoyed it and i loved the characters and as soon as it was over my dad said Oh, they made a lot of better films than that. That was the first thing you said. So, so clearly, I made it a goal to see all the other pictures. How did you go from being a fan of them to deciding to write this massive and so well-researched book about them? Thanks. I, I never made that decision. It was a series of things that happened. I was at UCLA Film School where I had gone to make films. You know, I was, I was a filmmaker and, and won an award with a film I made when I was 18. And I was now 20, about to turn 21, when uh, a guy named Vin DeBona, who now does America's Funniest Home Videos, uh, but was then just a film student, he said to me, uh, you want to interview Groucho Marx? There's various reasons why he said that. We had talked about the Marx Brothers a lot. You know, we decided to try and do it. He talked to some of the faculty, and the, some of the faculty had worked with George Seaton, who, of course, was one of the writers on Day at the Races. So it came down to, okay, if you want to talk to Groucho, you better talk to him. And he wanted us to talk to him first. So I went up by myself to to talk to him. He made an appointment at his office at Universal. Went and talked to him, and he said, well, you're the guy with the questions, and I'm the guy with the answers, so I'll just... Uh, let you fire away and I'll do my best to answer whatever you got. Well, I didn't have any questions. So I had brought a notebook with me and I opened it up to one of its many blank pages and pretended to read questions that I was in fact making up as I went. I think he figured this out, but he, he was, he was such a nice guy. He, he attempted to get us through to Groucho. He gave me information that I knew was not in any book because I knew the literature by that time. He tried to get me through to Groucho. Groucho said, have him call me in June. I think I called him June 1st, and he had no memory of saying it by that point, and he just brushed me off. But meanwhile, George Seaton had given us 
the phone numbers. You know, he felt bad that he, he, he knew what Grouch was like. He gave us the phone numbers for Harry Ruby and Irving Brecker, you know, two of their writers. And we did interviews with them. And by the time I finished, I had three interviews with information in them that I knew was not in any book. So I got the idea. I was I was just graduating. I got my BA in, in that very June. I uh, applied for grad school and, and, and got it. So I was a grad student and there was an independent study course that was open to, to grad students and I signed up for it. I thought it would take me two two passes at it to write up what I wanted to write up because I wanted to base it on what was all what was already known about the Marx Brothers, meaning what was in print. And then my my new my three interviews and I thought if I wrote that up I might get six units for that. And I had to get so many units to graduate. So at the end of that first quarter, we were on the quarter system at UCLA. It was a ten week school term. I had 40 pages on Night at the Opera, and uh, I thought I was going to have more covered by then, but the 40 pages were pretty good. Pauline Kael had, had already read a sample of this and had liked it very much, so I submitted it, and my professor flipped, and he said, you've got to finish this, and I'm sure we can find a publisher, and there were stars in my eyes, and he said, and this could be your your master's thesis. And I went, oh, oh no, because I figured they weren't going to let me write it that way. I mean, you've you've read the book, and it's got puns and sentence fragments in it, and I felt somebody was going to come down at some point and force me to clean it all up. And uh, my professor, Howard Suber, who's since published some stuff of his own that is, is quite good, he said, Joe, I'll be the head of your thesis committee, and I'll find more people who can be on your thesis committee and my thesis com- you know and and we will let you do this the way you've started it you know finish it the way you've started it he really made me do it <clears throat> and cleared the way through UCLA bureaucracy to uh, get me uh, a master's degree for it so I'm indebted to him but even at that point I didn't realize what it was going to become you know it was, it was two and a half years after that point before I had it done. And I had no idea it was going to be a 500-page book. But he said, you've got to talk to everybody you can. You've got to consult every source you can. And I had never gone to the Reader's Guide to find old articles in the Marx Brothers on the grounds that, gosh, there's so many of them. How am I ever going to find everything? And he said, you've got the Reader's Guide. Look, you know, um, there was a bibliography in Alan Isle's book, which I had read. And he said, if you've got that, use it. So basically, I completed, I think it was September 1st of 1970, that I submitted the final version, which was then the second draft of the whole thing to UCLA as my master's thesis, and then drove out to Pennsylvania and took my first job, my first professional full-time job teaching. When it comes to stories about like the way that Leo McCary worked with the Marx Brothers, how did you find out some of this stuff? This is amazing. That that was Arthur Sheikman. Arthur Sheikman was there. Harry Ruby gave us some of that. Well, McCary gave Peter Bogdanovich a full oral history 
I mean, Bogdanovich did a series of interviews with him, basically on his deathbed. You know, he edited it by going back to him and saying, you know, is this okay? And he would sort of nod his head. He was losing the power to speak and else. Um, and I was able to meet Peter, and I said, could I see that oral history? And he said, it's going to be uh, publicly available at the AFI in a couple months, so you'll you'll be able to see it there, which I did. At that time, oral history was considered to be the thing. You know, that was the way you did research. Because these people were alive, and they were just, you know, going to sit in an old folks' home or something till they died. You know, the motion picture country house out here has people right now that could tell stories. My my wife did a whole book on that in the early years of this, this century. That was just considered the thing. Now, since then, there's been a reaction to oral history because... Oral history will only tell you so much. It will tell you what people remember. Your mind rationalizes things and, and censors things, and you don't remember a lot of stuff. You know, uh, it's back there, but it, it's it's hard to pull it all out. You know, people remember things from their point of view, so it becomes a little self-serving to say, well, I, I practically directed that picture, which people will say. And some of, some of the things from my oral histories of other people, like Stuart Heisler and Byron Haskin, you know, have been criticized for, oh, well, he shouldn't have said this and that. And, and you know, studio records come up and a more fully fleshed out story becomes true. But still, I think oral history is valuable for that. People really took the attitude then that, you know, you're getting it from the horse's mouth, so it has to be right. Well, you're getting a slanted view of a person's career. It has to be taken with a grain of salt, but very often you get perceptions and things. I, I talked to these guys for like like an hour. At the end of an hour, Maury Rifkin said, that's enough, and then, you know? So you got what you were able to get, and then I would go back, and, you know, I would only be able to use a fraction of it. I love the style of the book in that you, you don't pull any punches, that you are as critical of the Marx Brothers movies as you are uh, uh, praising them. And it's wonderful that you can kind of do both things at one time. Um, well, I was a film student. And, uh, you, you know, I'm preparing now one of my 1968 oral histories for, for publication. And it's kind of funny to look at that stuff. I talked to a guy named Dick Humer who worked at Disney, and I said, uh, I mean, you know, Dumbo is great. Dumbo is some people's favorite film. Uh, and he was story director on it, one of two story directors. And I asked him why why this happened and why that happened. And he really took offense, but he did answer the question. You know, he, 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 he hadn't finished high school. Dick Humer hadn't. And uh, so, you know, you find yourself butting heads sometimes with your perspective but you know we 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 learned to be very critical of, of the films that we made and the films that we saw that our friends made and so forth one thing i learned in film school is if your friend makes a film you already like it, it it's as if you had made it you know what i mean you give him the benefit of the doubt and turns sometimes it turns out the, the faculty wasn't willing to give them the same benefit of the doubt that you would but, uh, you know, we all have our points of view. There are things in the films that I think work and things that don't work. But I just thought they were amazing films. I thought they were amazing films from the time I was 12 and saw The Big Store. And I was down on The Big Store but because by then I had seen Duck Soup and A Night at the Opera, and I knew what a Marx Brothers film could be. What is your favorite Marx Brothers film? 
I like to say that I don't have a favorite Marx Brothers film, but if I did, it would be Monkey Business. Sometimes my favorite Marx Brothers film is the last one I saw. Right now, the last one I've seen is is, uh, Animal Crackers. I very much appreciate the new restoration of it. It looks much better than it ever looked. Probably better than it... It it, it looks and sounds now. You can see it in probably a better condition than moviegoers saw it in 1930 because you would have heard it out of those crappy speakers and, you know, the print would have been a little more beat up than what you can see now is digital restoration. There's nothing missing. I think there's... I saw a couple frame skips in it, so that's how closely i've watched this film but monkey business i i i just love the first the first 20 minutes are just absolutely classic and the first hour is i think you know a marvelous film and they could have ended it there and the last 20 minutes is fine but it's kind of anticlimactic i I just have always enjoyed that that one film yeah i'm always surprised um to, to talking about duck soup a little bit more i'm always surprised at how short that movie is just 65 minutes Yes, and it was cut down from longer, and I can tell you one cut, which, if you go back, you can see this. They did have a gag, it's in the scripts, where every time Groucho presents his hat to a valet or receives his hat from a valet, his top hat, he pulls a rabbit out of it. And if you look at the movie now, you can see that they must have shot that because there's a cut every time he gets his hat or gives his hat to somebody. They seem to have cut out the removal of the rabbit. It didn't get a laugh. But they they had a lot of gag men, and they worked very hard. And this was supposed to be the big uh, money-making film that would save Paramount from its financial difficulties, and it didn't do that. It was a financial disappointment when it came out, mostly because the hopes for it were so damn high. But uh, it was not a flop, as some people have called it. Well, and then other people have said, and, and I think it might have been Grouch who's, who said that it was one of their worst films. Well, I'll tell you something. You know, Aaron Fleming has been criticized, and I, I have several critiques of her performance <laughs> I could give you. But her enthusiasm and her knowledge, you know, and she really was there with Groucho. She was there to support Groucho. I think she was well-intentioned, and, and she was quite genuine. And when I first met her, we talked about a lot of this, and she said Groucho would watch Duck Soup by himself in his study on television and come out and say, that's the worst film we ever made. And then he'd see it on a college campus with kids laughing all the way through it, and he'd say, that's the best film we ever made. But that's what Groucho was like. He he can hardly be objective. So, you know, I, I would I would take... That's, that's one of those comments you have to take with a grain of salt. <laughs> Well, and it sounds like he didn't necessarily get along with McCary too well, or at least it seems like their working ethic was a little different. Yeah, but I mean, he appreciated that McCary was a good director. When, when people asked him about the mirror scene, he said, uh, we did we improvised it all on a Saturday morning, and uh, it was fairly simple to do. He did say that. So obviously they, they worked together well. Somebody asked him, what What do you think was your best film? And he said, Duck Soup, McCary directed it. And and that was it. That's all he said, as if, well, you know Leo McCary. And uh, so he knew Leo McCary had a reputation, and there are reasons to consider Duck Soup a good film. I think there's reasons to criticize it, too. What are some of your criticisms of it? I think some of the dialogue scenes have a kind of perfunctory feel to them. McCary said he didn't care about them. 
and they just sort of they begin and and close some of the like Groucho's meeting with the with the board at the beginning with, with his cabinet, which is where the Secretary of War quits, and and Groucho later goes and recruits uh, Chico. Uh, but I mean, you know, it, it it just gets to the last line in the script, and then it fades out, and and some some of those things. There's various little things, but I think you know, the the big things are, are are major. But there's no really big thing weighing against it. The gag they wrote for the tattoo on Harpo's chest was supposed to be that it was an outhouse. Groucho says to Harpo, where do you live? And Groucho bears his chest, and you see this outhouse there. And he says, well, be it ever so humble, and he places this home, and he slaps Harpo on the back, and the door to the outhouse swings open, and a little hand pulls it shut again. That's the way they wrote it, but the Hayes office didn't like it, so they replaced it with the dog gag, which is... It doesn't work, but it's one of the most surreal things in the film. But it, it, it doesn't work as a gag for a dog to stick his head out of a tattoo of a doghouse. It just doesn't have the same effect. But, I mean, you know, there, there's little things like that you can say. But, you know, for the most part, it's, it's, it's quite incredible. I loved it the first time I saw it, and it was kind of funny what happened the first time I saw it, too. I was doing homework. I, you know, I, I got involved in filmmaking when I was only uh, 14. So I stopped really checking the TV listings every week and watching every comedy that came on. And I was doing homework one weekday night, and a friend called me and said, do you realize Duck Soup is on television right now? I said, it is. And I turned it on. I guess it was 7 p.m. Like, you know, dinner was over. And at 7.05 or something, he called. So I saw everything from a certain point to the end. And we had a TV upstairs and a TV downstairs. Well, it turned out I watched it by myself in my parents' bedroom on the second floor, went downstairs and found out my father and brother had watched it (laughs) on the downstairs television together. And I liked it and they didn't. So right away, I knew, you know, that it was not to everybody's taste, but I thought it was funny. And then... You know, when I wrote the, when I started the book, I was still under the spell of Arthur Marx's book, and I still, uh, you know, I went with the notion that Day at the Races and Night at the Opera were minor classics, which is what Arthur Marx calls them. And the Paramount films are a disappointment because they they weren't based on plays they had already done on Broadway. And, and you know, I, I knew I had laughed at, at Duck Soup, I laughed at Horse Feathers, I laughed at Monkey Business, but when I started the book, I, I was really writing a, a defense of the Marx Brothers that I would acknowledge, okay, there's some problems to the films, but they're still great. And really, in doing the book, came around to another opinion, and that's why I found out that friends of mine who managed to get hold of a print of Duck Soup, a bootleg print, they were really pushing the idea that the duck soup duck soup was the best of their films. Well, I had loved it the first time I saw it. So of course I was pretty receptive to that idea and that gradually crept in there. And then, you know, if you really look at day at the races, there's a lot of things a sixties kid, a sixties college student is going to criticize about it. You know, a lot of Hollywood phoniness in it. So I was critical of those things, and some people were even critical of Night at the Opera. I tried to take everything I heard into account. It was a three-and-a-half-year process putting that book together, so I heard a lot of different opinions. Well, I just tried to take everything into account. You know, I would sit down to write something and remember a lot of what friends had said and so forth. 
We, we talked about films all the time at UCLA. There wasn't money for actually making many. We, we made a few, too. But you end up doing a lot more talking about films. That's how I heard about a lot of films that came out. People said, you got to see this. I, I tried to incorporate all of that into the into the book as I did it. And I finished the first draft in at the end of February in 1970. And I really took a break. And I took a busman's holiday. I wrote a script for a friend of mine who was making a porno film, and I wrote the script for it. I, I did a couple things. But then I said, damn it, I'm going to have to sit down and revise this entire thing because I had written the first a first draft for every single thing. But in the course of doing the book, I had found out enough stuff to have to revise everything. You write something one month, you read it the next month, and you, you want to tweak it. So I had a lot of changes to make. So uh, I tried to do it. I was working as a teaching assistant at UCLA. If you check your history, you'll find out that after the Kent State shootings, the entire college system of the United States went out on strike and classes were canceled and people just got in a very revolutionary attitude. And I talked to my professor. I said, uh, does this mean I, I won't get paid as a teaching assistant? He said, no, it's not your fault that this has happened, you know, you'll get your paychecks. So I was essentially paid to sit home and sit in my apartment and revise, you know, write the second draft of, of the book. And I can't say I ever had an experience like that with any of my other books. <laughs> you know, they, they all got in and, and, and uh, uh, got printed up as soon as I got them submitted. With Bugs, with the Bugs Bunny book, it got kind of frantic. I'm so glad that you were able to get those stories and get the way that it was put together because it is. It just seems like there's no real. You you are the authority on it. There's no real uh, other sources as far as I can even find. There's a lot of stuff in print, and there's small articles. You know, there's tiny articles in the trades, and uh, people have spent a lot of time going through that stuff. I discovered it before I finished the book, but in 1970, with student strike going on and, and uh, uh, the task of revising the book to my satisfaction facing me and, and, and a job I was supposed to pick up in September, I really couldn't just start going through all the trades and looking for March Brothers notices. But I found out more stuff, and there's still people finding out stuff. Let me tell you this. There are people who insist that, that that people at Universal have told them that the Zeppo had more footage in the early versions of Duck Soup. You know, they, they would they would preview it and then cut it. And Zeppo had a more important part in the plot in in the longer versions. And they say that stuff was cut, and they still have the footage. And they say that studio sources, more than one studio source, has told them. Oh yeah, that footage exists. You know, we've got it. I can't put my finger on it right now. I'm not sure where it's gone to, but uh, it exists. That's what they said. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, I work at the Academy Library. I know what that's like, but it's a frustrating thing to to say to somebody. <laughs> oh, that footage supposedly still exists, but we may never see it. But it's it, it, it is thought that that was why Zeppo finally 
quit. You know, he'd, he'd been threatening to quit and thinking about it as long ago as the stage production of Coconuts. The contract says if Herbert Marks leaves the group, this is what we do. Um, so he obviously was thinking about it way back. But when he got a bigger part in Duck Soup than he had in the previous two pictures, in the previous two pictures, he, he, he's, he's, he's pretty good. You know, he's, he's got some pretty good stuff. But then when, when, when McCary gave him more footage and then cut it from the film, th- that was the last straw. Yeah, it feels like there are pieces missing, not just the rabbit in the hat bit, but just things like like uh, Raquel Torres is the Vera Mar- Marcal character. She is there, and then she just kind of goes away. You know, <laughs> yes. Even the uh, Leonid Kinski, the, the agitator at the beginning, it's like, he seems like he's supposedly has done stuff before and then he's just in there and then again he kind of goes away if you look at the newspaper headline you'll see that the newspaper that trentino is reading in that scene with harpo and chico is the newspaper that we have seen the headlines of saying rufus t firefly is going to become president of fredonia it looks like that's i think that scene was in the script to be ahead of the inauguration scene the, then that would have been Harpo's introduction in the scene. His introduction, his introduction in the scene with Chico uh, taking his disguise off, would have been his introduction in the movie. That his introduction in the movie is he suddenly pulls up in a motorcycle, unexplained, no character name, nothing. You can see why they put the inauguration scene first. It, it works pretty well that way. Right, right. When the songs are so good in the movie. Yeah. The songs are there, but the urban piano solos are not, and that was much criticized at the time. And some exhibitors thought that they should have had more of that instead of less. Instead of cutting it, they should have let them get to the harp and the piano more than just once. And, you know, sometimes on the stage, Chico would do encores for half an hour, you know. It was a popular part of the act, and maybe that that helps account for why people had a problem with with the movie when it came out. Some people had a problem with it, some didn't, but uh, it, it was not a flop. <laughs> that really has been said, and that's not the case. Um, the only other things I was going to say was, this was the fifth film on their Paramount contract. People have discovered the their 1930 contract, which calls for them to make three films, and they figured that that was the contract that the earlier contract must have been for only two films. In fact, I found a notice that said, no, the original contract was for five films in 1928. What happened in 1930 was, because they were getting competing offers from other people, Paramount upped the ante. Instead of paying them $100,000 a picture, they paid them $200,000 a picture. So they rewrote the existing contract. And it's it's still called for three more films, no more than one film a year, which was Groucho's idea from the beginning, no more than one film a year. That was that, and they were it called for them to get a percentage of the box office take, a percentage of the profits, and Monkey Business and Horse Feathers were very profitable, so they should have gotten a lot of money from that, but they never got that percentage, so that's why they walked out, and they weren't going to do Duck Soup. They went to New York and they formed a Marx Brothers Incorporated with Sam Harris 
and they were going to produce their own shows with him and do them on the stage first and then make films of them afterward, like Animal Crackers and Coconuts. That was the plan, but finally their lawyers said, Paramount wants that fifth film, and you're committed to doing it. You're never going to see that money if you don't go back and do the fifth film. So they came back and did the fifth film, and there's not, I don't see any evidence on screen that they're doing this whole thing under protest. You know, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're giving it full bore. They're, they're giving it their all. They're, they're doing their 110%. And it just shows how good they were at what they did. I mean, they, they stepped into those costumes and they knew those characters and they just did it. You, you asked me a little bit about um, why it's still popular. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, its structure. I think one reason that I think it's considered the best of the films and I, I do consider it one of their best. I, I think no matter how you look at it, it's one of their best. My favorite may be Monkey Business, but I think Duck Soup and Night at the Opera are probably the peak of their careers. Twin Peaks, maybe. I mean, Duck Soup is so brilliantly structured, and, and both Monkey Business and Horse Feathers are not. Uh, there's wonderful things in them. And, and Duck Soup, you might criticize you know, some of the things in it. You might say some of the jokes don't get laughs. But in fact, it's so brilliantly structured. It, it, it's so incredible. If you try and follow them like regular movies, they will lead you down the rabbit hole until you just don't know where you are. I, I just think they're both incredible that way. And I would also say the same thing about Mulholland Drive, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, which sets itself up as a mystery. And the more you learn about what happened, the less you understand about life and the world. It, 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 it's just an incredible thing. Uh, you know, Shenandoah is great, but it's, it's a short film. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a very surreal short film on purpose. We were attempting to be as surreal as possible. They tried to do a surreal feature called Lodge Door, which I've seen. And, it, you know, it just isn't talked about. It just isn't discussed the same way Shenandoah is. And I think it's as bizarre as Shenandoah, but it just doesn't work as well. I think Million Dollar Legs and Duck Soup and Mulholland Drive show a good surreal feature. You've got to start out like you're going to be a regular movie <laughs> and gradually discover, lead you into, into this, this total uh, insanity. And that, that, that's, that's, basically the way I think Duck Soup works and part of why I think people still love it. I mean, there's nothing like it. Not even the other Marx Brothers films are not like it. It's just an incredible thing. You know, thinking back on what Mary Pickford said, let's face it, there's films from the 20s we're still talking about and films from the 20s that we're not. A producer can't wait that long to find out if his film is successful or not, but it really does tell you that some films are just some films are, are, are deathless, yeah, and, and some films are not. Some films are just, you know, fun for the moment. I'm curious what the reaction to the book was like when it came out in 73. I have to say that I was disappointed. Um, and maybe it was just such a buildup. You know, I won two fellowships in, in the course of doing it. So as I went, it became clear that it wasn't just Dr. Suber who liked this. You know, it wasn't just a private thing of me and Dr. Suber thinking this was going to be good. 
I had a friend in the East Coast whose name is James Morrow, who you can now Google. He's, he's a pretty well-known novelist. He's won the Nebula Award twice. We'd made films together, and he was my friend. I sent chapters to him, and he said, this looks spectacular. And some of the jokes in there are his, I have to say. I asked him if he'd write the room service chapter because I didn't know, you know, I, I, I thought I only had a year to write this. That was the first thing written. And I ended up finding out so much stuff about room service. Almost all of his text was was lost, but one of his sentences remains. I was not familiar with the phrase workshop. You know, you, you, a writer will now workshop a text. You know, he'll send it around. I never heard that phrase, but that's really what happened with that book. And, I, you know, then I knew. I took it to Simon & Schuster, and they said, you know, they had some changes they wanted to make and some of them i said everybody else thinks this is great i don't want to cut this you know <laughs> so they they went with me on that i was i was surprised they gave me a page and a half of corrections and a third of them i said you're right a third of them i said i know what you mean but i'm i want to change something else and i think this will work better and a third of them i said no i don't want to do that and that was the end of the discussion. Simon and Schuster was very complimentary when they took it on. They said, hardly do we get a book that's ready to be printed right now. We usually get a book that just needs a lot of editorial work. There's not much for us to do as editors. Uh, my professor just said I was a genius, and this was great. Dr. Suber, I won two fellowships, one from the American Film Institute. And the second one was won in spite of the fact that I had won on this AFI award, they said, well, you know, our our rules say we have to go on uh, content alone. We have to go on our reaction to to uh, the the thing itself, not, you know, any any other money you may have from somewhere else is not supposed to count. So we just had to give this to you. When when George Stevens Jr. running the AFI, you know, when he talked to the guys who were looking at the manuscripts for the uh, for the fellowship, you know, they had tons, they had stacks and stacks of manuscripts. And he said, "Are there any James Ages here?" And they said, "Yes, one." And they pulled out mine. So after all that, I was really expecting, you know, just nothing but great reviews, and and I got some great reviews, but. Uh, Geez, the New York Times just said, eh, you know, it's not bad, but it finally gets tiresome. It actually says there's no other word for it but tiresome. And it's like, no other word for it. I mean, you know, how does that sound to you now? I mean, there's still people who call it their favorite Marx Brothers book, and some people it's their favorite book of all time. And and it got all kinds of praise as I was doing it. So to have the New York Times take this opinion was really a, a, a downer. And then, then I realized film, you know, book reviewers all over the country go by what the New York Times book review says. So in essence, I stopped getting the, the, the great, the great reviews saying it was a great book, but I've, I've got a couple. One of them was in variety. It just said if the Marx Brothers weren't already a legend, this book would cinch that. It, it, it was pretty disappointing. How did you meet Bob Whitey? Well, I mentioned James Morrow, who I made films with uh, in high school, and then I went to Gettysburg College for two years before 
transferring to UCLA. In that group was another guy and and also Dave Stone. So, I mean, those two guys are still two of my best friends in the world. Dave Stone, when I decided to come out here after teaching at Penn State for four years, I decided to come back and actually make another stab at making it in Hollywood. Uh, He came out about the same time. And, uh, you know, we both bounced around, but we were we were a support group for each other. He was working at Hanna-Barbera when Richard Patterson was working at Hanna-Barbera. And Richard Patterson had made a film called The Gentleman Tramp about Charlie Chaplin. And Bob Whitey was just a kid. He was, he was just, a, you know, a high school kid, but a very ambitious and very intelligent kid. Big fan of the March Brothers, of course, and also Woody Allen. But he was a big fan of the Gentleman Tramp, so he sought out Richard Patterson. And he realized he was going to he was working in Hanna Barbera, so he shows up at Hanna Barbera and says, "I'm trying to make a documentary on the March Brothers. You know, could I get you to be its director editor?" Dave Stone is right there, so he says, "If you're making a documentary on the March Brothers, of course you want to talk to my friend Joe Adamson." And he went, yeah, you know, but he couldn't really figure how I could be involved in this project. But, you know, we talked and Richard Patterson and he, in fact, didn't get along. So uh, Richard Patterson remained the director of the film. I became the editor. I became the writer. Bob, as the producer of the film, just ended up so busy on the phone trying to solve its various legal problems, which weren't solved until... I think the week after the show already aired in Los Angeles. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it really was insanity. And, and PBS really should get points for charging on regardless because they could have said, look, when you've got this all worked out, let us know. Meanwhile, we've got to have a a big show that's going to be actually be ready in the spring of 1982. Uh, but they didn't do that. It's kind of incredible. What was it like kind of revisiting the material that you had covered so much with the the documentary? Like I said, I came out here to make films. I already was a college student when I came out here to, to enroll in, at UCLA Film School. But I was an award-winning filmmaker as well. My main interest was in making films. So to be making a film about the Marx Brothers, that was just that was just great. But you are you are looking at a different medium. And it's just like if we had something we wanted to get across and we didn't have film on it, we tried to put it in the narration. And I did the scratch narration track for for the film. In other words, I, I would edit in the narrator by reading a line into a tape recorder and then transferring it to mag film and cutting it in. And we could see that this did was not going to work. So essentially... There's some things that will work in the narration and some things that you want to have people say on camera. And in 1981, it was 1981 when we actually got to go ahead to actually do this, there were still a lot of people living. We, we, we'd lost Harry Ruby and Arthur Sheikman, people I really would have liked to cover. But, I mean, Bob found Norman Krasno, which, who I had never met. In fact, I never did meet him. I wasn't there when they did the interview. I didn't meet Maxine Marks until later, but I mean, you know, the family, we had, he, he had to do it with the agreement of the family. We had Arthur Marks and Bill Marks and Maxine Marks, and they all had their various perspectives. So 
It was essentially a matter of putting it together and figuring out what was going to work and what wasn't. Since I wrote the book, Hector Arce had done a lot of work, too, and also Paul Wazalowski had done a lot of extra research, some of which I've now looked at, but we hadn't then. So, in other words, we, we, we had their cooperation. And uh, no, Hector Arce actually had died, believe it or not, or in 1981. He died in his 40s. He uncovered a lot of stuff, so we knew a little bit more about the Marx Brothers going into this than we, than than I knew when I finished the book. But we also knew we were contracted to deliver a ninety-minute uh, show. It was actually ninety-six minutes, I think, that we delivered. We could have done a mini-series from, from the interview footage we got. Bob went out and he shot forty-five-minute interviews. We had to shoot on sixteen-millimeter film. Now you could even go on for longer, but then you would go for 10 minutes and have to reload. So it, it really made it difficult. And film costs money, so he only shot four or five magazines on each interview. But I mean, out of that stuff, you know, some of the interviews were longer, but I'd say we got about 40, 45 usable minutes out of each of those interviews, and he did 16 or 18 of them. I did a whole bunch... We easily could have done a miniseries, but there wasn't time or money to to do that. So we ended up doing a 90-minute show with, with a wonderful outtake reel. I'm trying to think if those outtakes were, were used. When, when Jim Curtis did his book on W.C. Fields, we gave him access to all our, all our Fields outtakes. But it wasn't, they weren't nearly so plentiful as our Marx Brothers outtakes. You do, we just could have gone on and on and on with that, you know. And, and you want the show to work, you know. It's got to be, it's got to be playable. So you couldn't use everything. I mean, you know, you got to structure it right. So that that was our main concern. Yeah, Bob was saying that one of the cuts was what fifteen hours long or something, something insane. Yeah, Richard Patterson said to me, he was the director, I was the editor, he said, I want to see an assembly of this picture, uh, and I want it ready in 10 days. And it took me, I think, two weeks, but we did it. But nobody ever said, I want you to use this scene, I want you to use this part of this interview, and I don't want you to use this part. I just had everything that was usable spliced in there together. And it was a 17-hour, I think it was a 17-hour cut. Uh, Richard couldn't look at it in one sitting. It took three viewings to actually get from the beginning to the end. But then we kind of knew where we were going. So I, I found in this business that if you're writing or, or editing for, for somebody, they won't tell you what they want you to do. But as soon as you do something, they will tell you what's wrong with it. But this, this goes back to what I said about being a film student, you know, you learn a lot about critiquing stuff. I can look at anything now and tell you what I think is good and bad about it. You know, any film, not just a comedy film, but people tend to think of me when they do comedy stuff and tend not to think of me when they don't. This is a gala day for you. Well, a gala day is enough for me. I don't think I can handle it anymore. If it's not asking too much. For our information, jobs for illustration, to to run the nation. These are the laws of my administration. No one's allowed to smoke or tell a dirty joke, and whistling is forbidden. We're not allowed to tell a dirty joke. There will be no nut. If 
chewing gum is chewed, the chewer is pursued, and in the hooskow hidden, if we choose to chew, we'll be pursued. If any form of pleasure is exhibited, report to me and it will be prohibited. I'll put my foot down, so shall it be. This is the land of the free. The last man nearly ruined this place. He didn't know what to do with it. If you think this country's bad off now, just wait till I get through with it. The country's taxes must be fixed, and I know what to do with it. If you think you're paying too much now, just wait till I get through with it. I will not stand for anything that's crooked or unfair. I'm strictly on the up and up, so everyone beware. If anyone's caught taking graft, and I don't get my share, we stand them up against the wall and pop goes the weasel. So everyone If any man should come between a husband and his bride, we find out which one she prefers by letting her decide. If she prefers the other man, the husband steps outside. We stand him up against the wall and pop goes the weasel. All right, we are back and we are talking about duck soup. So, yeah, we touched a little bit on this before we uh, went for that long break there. But, you know, we're talking about a movie that's over 80 years old, guys. And for me, it still holds up. And it sounds like from everybody that we've talked to, it still holds up for them and it still holds up for, for us as well. So it's just it's amazing that this thing from 1933 is still so relevant today. Well, as long as we enjoy killing each other in mass and having idiots run the show, uh, I think this film will probably always be relevant. That's completely correct, and I would agree. But I also think that humor, if it's good humor, uh, doesn't. Uh, doesn't die. I think hu- humor is always if it's if it's strong, if it's witty, if it's clever, if it's well written and well performed. Um, and like you say, Rob, if those archetypes, um, whether it's war in this film or whether it's schooling and horse feathers or whatever, those archetypes don't go away. Uh, they'll always be relevant and they'll always be funny. You only have to look at any of the successful comedy that is still around today is is all based on the human experience and based on those archetypes that will, because of human nature, even as much as the world changes or even as... Uh, so-called sort of uh, liberal and open as people get, though human nature will always exist and will always endure and there'll always be those people who are assholes and there'll always be the downtrodden and there'll always be the hierarchy and that's just the way the human being, or the human animal rather, has been since we crawled out of the ocean. So that's why it endures. And I think it also endures in all the comedy that it's influenced you know we've talked throughout the the show whether it's the parody films the surreal parody films or whether it's the uh, war films the the anti-war films or whether it's uh, cartoons or uh, you know um the the cultural relevance of sort of the glasses eyebrows big nose and mustache that you can buy still at any uh you know makeup or halloween store or whatever you know the whatever whatever it is that those those things stick around yeah, it's just amazing that that we can find humor, and, and we've talked about this movie as as far as you know, as a film from a filmmaking point of view. If we want to get into you know, get down to brass tacks, because you gotta you gotta pull up the tax before you raise the carpet. <laughs> the 
movie is is just held together by the 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 tiniest of strings you know just so many strange little things just you know bits that are are, uh, seem like they come out of left field and and just you know the the way that they rearrange some scenes you know we we heard in the interviews you know different uh bits that were supposed to be in there like uh groucho pulling the rabbit out of his hat and the way that they cut around that and just it's just amazing that you know even going back to the uh the the robbery of the house when we cut to Mrs. Teasdale, she's there with the dancer character, and it's just like, well, what are they, those two doing together? And we never really get what they were doing, but they were just they were together in the same room, and it's just like, well, that's kind of an odd thing. And that in the movie's filled with those kind of things if you really stop and look at it, but. At no time do you really need to stop and look at it. It just moves along with this momentum and just has this powerhouse of all of these jokes that you don't really need to ever stop and look at. I mean, that's our job here on this podcast is to stop and look at these things and to say, well, this is kind of strange and and this doesn't really add up that well. But I don't think we're saying it in a critical view. I don't think we're saying, and for that reason, it's bad. We're just saying this is a, it's an odd thing, and the pressures of movie making and everything. It, it just you know, if you're going to cut everything out other than the jokes, this movie did a pretty damn good job of just leaving you the jokes. Definitely, and and I think both their history in the theater, but also the fact that this is made at a time where something like this would have been shot almost entirely on Hollywood sound stages. Um, there, there doesn't need to be that. Uh, elaborate set dressing or elaborate realistic things. There just needs to be a hint of, well, this is where this is. This is a big stately home, or this is a a, a big meeting room for the government, or, you know, this is a, a big... Uh, um, official building or whatever um and and into that you can then play around as much as you like but it's 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 more like theatrical set dressing than it is sort of movie realistic uh um set dressing in in terms of kind of contemporary films and the way that that they aim even even with comedy films aim for as much realism as far as shooting it. Um, and so, uh, but also, like you say, you get the sequences that are rough around the edges and maybe edited in a rough way and, and, uh, don't have much of a backdrop and are just sort of two or three people doing a bit. And then you get the enormous, huge Hollywood musical number, which has a hundred extras who are all dancing in unison and, you know, with different costumes and different levels. And some people are on their back with their legs kicking up and other people are playing the banjo or coming down the stairs with big uh, uh, feathers or instruments or whatever it is. So you kind of get both in the movie, you know, which is kind of wonderful. It's got a bit of old Hollywood to it, but it's also got a kind of bit of theatrical to it and uh, everything. And as for uh, the director, he would go on to make some some other films that I think uh, people have seen or have uh, really enjoyed. I mean, one of which uh, kind of caught my attention a few years ago was Criterion put out uh, Make Way for Tomorrow, in which uh, this is kind of a funny story. He was nominated for Best Picture for two films that year, Make Way for Tomorrow and The Awful Truth. And he got it for The Awful Truth. And when he received the statue of, for excuse me, Best Director, um, he said, thanks, but you gave this to me for the wrong picture, which was <laughs> Make Way for Tomorrow, he felt was a better film. As a matter of fact, um, was so well received that uh, Orson Welles said of it, it says it could make a stone cry, talking about how it was such a, a beautiful film. And he said that he 
thought it was uh, was great. Errol Morris said it's his number one film, according to what I've read. Uh, he called it the most depressing movie ever made. <laughs> so uh, I have not seen it, but there's those who who believe that it may have also been an inspiration on uh, Ozu's Tokyo Story to kind of give you an idea. Because I've heard it's one of the most depressing movies ever made, that's why I haven't rushed out to see it. <laughs> but but I would like to one of these days. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I should have watched that right after I watched Fiddler on the Roof a couple of weeks ago. And I was just like, you know, oh, let's watch movies that are going to make me cry. Right w- <laughs> right there with Umbrellas with Cherbourg, you know. Yeah, I mean, the other films that he's probably better known for because, I mean, at least in terms of titles – uh, an Affair to Remember, and then also The Bells of St. Mary's. So it, he had a career that went on quite a while. I mean, he started in shorts in the in the early, mid-20s, and before that he had been a uh, an assistant to, I think it was, um, it wasn't Griffith, it was uh, Todd Browning. So, I mean, he had a bit of a career dating back to right after World War One until uh, the early 60s. One one of the bit of the, one of the gags in the movie that that for some reason I was just reminded of, but I guess because we were kind of talking about uh, the time in which it was made, um, is the sequence where uh, you think that um, Harpo and the lady are in bed together, uh, which is that um, what people wouldn't realize now, I guess, is that there was a haze code at the time that said that you couldn't show a man and a woman in bed together. So what's really ridiculous is in that sequence you see a man and a horse in bed together <laughs> which apparently is absolutely acceptable <laughs> but if you'd seen a man and a woman in bed together that would that would have been that would have been problematic but it's it's uh, it's it's interesting that those kind of um it's not just the satire of uh, war and all the rest of it that 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 they're doing that they're also kind of thumbing their nose at um maybe the hollywood establishment a little bit you know they ran into trouble with the haze code eventually or, or they thought they would so they ended up having to snip a couple jokes so i'm glad that's why that new blu-ray box is out now where we've got those jokes kind of restored yeah definitely that's fantastic well i hadn't heard about this coming out so when's that coming out what's what's the deal on it it is coming out october 18th so just a little a couple weeks after this one is coming out so and uh yeah that they go back in and they restore a couple jokes that were cut out some uh, missing frames that have been in there so people get to see the uh, unexpurgated versions of some of the early marx brothers films so it's the coconuts animal crackers monkey business horse feathers and duck soup oh so it's a paramount box set it's just the the five paramount movies okay cool and and they're they're certainly my favorite because i think that my humor uh, sort of slides on the side of more ridiculous like i like the later ones they're they're, they're good and they still have the what bits in it that you want but it also has a lot of bits in it that i'm not as interested in uh, for me the idea that duck soup doesn't necessarily have a linear plot or a, uh, a or holds together particularly strongly is not a bad thing for me it's kind of a plus <laughs> i like knockabout um movies that that cut to the jokes uh, and cut to the the craziness and and also get to make a great point along the way um and uh yeah duck soup has that in spades and i think i think you can watch it as uh entertainment and you can also delve into it as deep as you want you know armchair philosophers or armchair sociologists can really uh, pull the film apart as much as they like and uh, and have fun doing that too you know I think that Animal Crackers has one of my favorite bits because we're talking about that whole idea of 
Chico and Groucho are the only ones that can really engage in wordplay, but that's one of those instances where Chico and Harpo engage in wordplay because Chico is asking for the flashlight at one point, and he just keeps saying, give me the flash. And then Harpo proceeds to give him anything and everything that sounds like it could be the word flash. So he gives him a fish, gives him the flesh. Yeah, <laughs> all this kind of stuff is just amazing. I love that sequence. Yeah, it's tremendous. So I mean, they, they all, all of the movies have something you know if someone is listening to this if they're a long time uh, projection booth listener and they come across this and they 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 either don't know the marx brothers or they only know the marx brothers from various iconic imagery but they don't actually know the films i, ca- I can't urge people enough to go back and and uh, uh, discover these films because if you really if you like any kind of contemporary comedy it all stems from no i mean obviously not just the marx brothers but they're they're great exponents of of most of the origin of what we would consider contemporary comedy, certainly filmed comedy anyway. So are there any films that could be, you know, if you're going to do a double feature of Duck Soup and something else, anything that you guys would kind of recommend as far as fitting into this, you know, anarchic war parody kind of thing? Uh, the only thing I can think of that comes close in terms of the anarchy and wordplay and satire would be Dr. Strangelove. Um, there are others that are uh, war satires or uh, government satires, but they're not as crazy <laughs> as this one. Uh, maybe the Great Dictator. I mean, I, I was Doctor Strangelove was on my list, and actually, if you if you think that Doctor Strangelove was originally going to end with a massive pie fight, it would have been uh, almost uh, more like Duck Soup in that regard. Um, Doctor Str- Doctor Strangelove feels like Duck Soup if you sat down and really re- like sat down and just wrote a focused satire. Uh, so for all the ridiculousness that's in Doctor Strangelove, it's also as bleak, dark, and and weird as it is crazy, fun, silly, humorous, and all the rest of it. It kind of has everything going for it. And it it feels like a polished duck soup. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like a contemporary polished duck soup in a weird way. Um, But I would also look, I mean, only because obviously he cites them as a massive influence, but you could look at something like Woody Allen's Love and Death, um, and, uh, and also I was, I was going to say in a weird way for the chaos that it shows and also the episodic nature of it in an odd way, apocalypse now, not that it's funny in that sense, but it is chaotic and it is episodic and you do have those characters, you know, you think of the Robert Duvall character or something he's not a million miles away from a character that could show up in either strange love or duck soup, you know? Well, yeah. Colonel Kilgore. I mean, compared to general Ripper. Yeah. I think he's kind of, uh, in the same army. Yeah, no, completely. And utterly. yeah, yeah. I just didn't have the name off the top of my head, but no, I, I think there are elements of it and aspects of it. And I, even even movies that people think are the most serious of movies or are making the most either artistic or deep or whatever point to them, I still see humor in them and I still find humor in them. And there is still, I think if you're going to do an anti-war picture or an anti-government picture, it, you have to somewhere heighten the reality in order to get that either the point across or the humor across. And I think Apocalypse Now certainly has that, you know. 
You mentioned Love and Death, and I love Love and Death. We covered that on the show a long time ago. But I have to say that I think that Bananas would be right up there as well. I think that um, Woody Allen really hits it with Bananas and the whole idea of this you know, dictator and everything. I mean, in pointing out the ridiculousness of this dictator. So I, I thought that that one would, would be a good double feature. I, I still say the top Secret is one of my favorite war parody films and, and does a good job. I, sometimes, you know, I'm like, okay, well, the, the Blue Lagoon stuff is a little much, but whatever. You know, the, the, as an overall movie, it is still one of my favorites, and it just does such a good job with the uh, the tropes of the World War II films. There are certain movies now that I watch, and like Bridge of Spies, where I'm just like, can't help but laughing <laughs> because I keep thinking about, you know... Uh, fake fake doggy do and those kind of things but my, my, my favorite line in top secret is when he says uh the french guy says um uh you have to learn to deal with adversity in a mature and adult fashion and then he sneezes into his hand looks at his hand and goes oh god and like jumps out of the window like that's that to me is one of the perfect satire moments because it's it's taking something that's serious and then just making it ridiculous. And I love, uh, and, you know, he's trying to be all pompous and know it all and whatever. And then he can't even cope with what he blows out of his nose. I just think it's tremendous. I love that's one of my favorite bits in Top Secret. And I've I've read that the Dictator, the Sasha Baron Cohen film, is funny, but I haven't seen it. And they say that that's kind of duck soupish but I've, I've read lots of people saying that sasha baron cohen is funny and i've seen i've seen all of his stuff more or less including the dictator and i i i don't get it there are some things he says as borat especially when he's describing his village uh and the crazy traditions that go on in the village that i find funny just because of the surreal and crazy nature of them but the the dictator i i found very um middle of the road i found it very kind of uh well let's poke fun at uh, uh, let's just poke fun relentlessly at things that w- without any art or without any craft or without any intelligence it was just let's just poke fun at easy targets it felt like to me yeah after bruno i wasn't going to rush out to see any more of his I films i saw it in the theater and i haven't seen it since so uh i mean for me i love the show i think that uh sasha baron cohen works better in in small bits but i did think that Borat as a film was quite good. So, and and I also think that just our question um, comment on Sacha Baron Cohen very quickly is just to say that I I don't think any of his stuff gets particularly uh, uh, d- deep, clever, or interesting. Not that everything has to be deep, clever, and interesting. I'm not really saying that, but he takes very easy targets. It's easy to poke fun at celebrities, and it's easy to poke fun at. Uh, um, you know, politicians in in the way that he does, you know, and the fact that he sort of devolves into you know testicle gags or ass gags and and not even particularly funny and or clever ones sort of just makes me think that you know people who compared him to Peter Sellers and stuff is they're not really on the right <laughs> they're not really on the right tack with that. Well, maybe he's just really difficult to work <laughs> with. I think more they were saying about like the way he gets into character, but. I think it's easy to put on a funny. Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's not, but I think it's easy to put on a funny mustache and do a, 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 a slightly odd Eastern European accent and just walk around and be an idiot. But I mean, other people may disagree and think it's high art. I don't know. <laughs> other than the accent, walking around with the mustache and being an idiot, I do that all the time. <laughs> Me too, dude. So uh, yeah, that's no problem. All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. 
the night of the formal is finally here for Chris, Cindy, and JC. It's going to be the best night of their lives. But tonight is also the night of the creeps. From a world unknown comes a nightmare unimagined. First, they are under you, around you, on you, and then inside you. And get into your mouth and you walk around while they incubate, even if you're dead. They are a new breed of terror. Freeze! They are a different kind of horror. Zombies, exploding heads, creepy crawlies. We could have a little problem. The creeps are taking over. Oh, I got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. You have never had a night like this. Night of the creeps. If you scream, you're dead. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Night of the Creeps, which kicks off a very busy Shocktober here at the Projection Booth. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Rob and John. Rob, what has been keeping you off the streets after curfew these days, my friend? Well, the fact that I have a tether. No, um, I have just been uh, working my two gigs, doing, uh, enjoying that, of course, uh, every Thursday. Not to compete with the Projection Booth, but if you're in Detroit and you want to know what's going on, Arts and culture-wise, you can check out Detours. You can get it wherever the quality podcasts, such as the, the Projection Booth is. And then, uh, of course, my uh, my other day job. But the, uh, the other thing that I launched, and I'll tell you now because it's coming out uh, in the next few weeks, uh, so get ready. I have started a record label. That's right. I've started a record label. It's called Hold Fast. And um, my first release is coming out, and it is MC Nightshade and the Theater Bazaar Orchestra. Theater Bazaar being the great uh, world's greatest masquerade every Halloween season here in Detroit. Uh, to call it a Halloween party is a drastic understatement. But as for this M- mysterious Mr. MC Nightshade, it is David J., who is the bass player and songwriter for uh, Bauhaus and Love and Rockets. And sort of leading a, uh, I guess you would say, Weimar cabaret slash New Orleans traditional jazz orchestra and singing about carnies and all kinds of uh, things of the night. So if uh, you like Tom Waits, if you like um, Nick Cave, if you like uh, Bauhaus and Love and Rockets, I'm your man. So uh, go to hfvinyl.com, find out more about that, and David will be out with uh, the band playing uh, some select shows around the country over the next couple months. Yeah, that sounds incredible, Rob. Yeah, um, drop me a link uh, to that website and so that I can look it up. I love that kind of every, – everyone you just referenced, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to love that. So I want to hear that. Very cool. Thank you. And John, how many podcasts are you doing these days? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually um, only two 
I had to think about that. <laughs> Only two, and one of them very, very sporadically. Um, but for people who don't know, uh, I am uh, the person behind the After Movie Diner, um, which started off as a blog, became a podcast, and is now an entire website. <laughs> Much for my sins, considering it takes all my time to maintain it. Uh, but you can go over to AfterMovieDiner.com, uh, on which there is uh, my podcast, The After Movie Diner, but also the second one that I'm kind of a co-host on, uh, which is Dr. Action and the Kick-Ass Kid Commentaries podcast, which is sort of if MST3K uh, riffed on 80s and 90s action movies, uh, but did so without a censor. It's, uh, <laughs> we kind of make a lot of, uh, um, I don't know what you'd say, adult jokes, I guess. Um, but it's, yeah, it's 80s and 90s action movies, so the films of Steven Seagal and uh, Rudolph Lundgren and things like that. Uh, but we love those films, so we do it with love. It's, it's not... Um, it's not uh, attacking at them or, or, or kind of mocking them ironically. Uh, so that's a good fun show to do, but that comes out sporadically. There's the After Movie Diner show, which comes out every week, um, where for about the last year, we've just been looking at one film a week. And uh, it tends to be on the genre, cult, um, Americana um, odd or weird kind of films. Uh, and sometimes we do independent films as well. We get a lot of independent submissions, so we do those as well. And then the other stuff you can find on the website, if I'm not going on too long, uh, we have um, uh, comedy articles that are written about Hammer Horror Films, which is one of my favorite things uh, from the bloke down the pub, um, which is uh, one of the great things. We have Bollywood Films reviewed on there. Uh, we have a series being done at the moment by one of our uh, contributors on cult classics. He just did Halloween 3 and before that, had done Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and um, Ms. 45 and some others. So, uh, yeah, if you are a fan of genre cult Americana movies, um, then uh, the aftermoviediner.com should have something uh, that you like. Um, apart from that, um, I also do some music uh, under the name of Miscellaneous Plumbing Fixtures, uh, which is cumbersome at best. Uh, but you can find uh, Miscellaneous Plumbing Fixtures on Spotify and Bandcamp if you so wish to hear some uh, kind of folky, uh, bluesy, rocky kind of uh, comedy-infused songs. Did you take a breath during that? No, I didn't. No, and I. I wow. <laughs> I always feel embarrassed rambling on about myself like that. But no, please check it out if you're even remotely interested. <laughs> well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. I'll be sure to link to what Rob was talking about and all those things that John was talking about. <laughs> so you can also find links over there to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to our Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world. And it's war! And it's war! Get on the forces! On the horses! It's war! Fredonia's gone to war. Each native son will grab a gun and run away to war. At last we're going to this is a fact we can't ignore. We're going to war. This is a fact we can't ignore. In case you haven't heard before, I think they think we're going to war. I think they think we're going to war. We're going to war. I think they think we're going to war. We're going to war. We're going to war. We're going to war.
show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. At Huntington, we've been asking ourselves, is it possible to lend money at zero interest? And it totally is. Introducing Standby Cash. When you need extra cash, you can qualify for between $100 and $1,000 at Huntington. And it's free when you auto pay us back across three months. Why would a bank do that? Just to look out for people. That's how we reinvent banking. Huntington. Welcome. Without automatic payments, 12% APR. Eligibility requirements apply. Amount available is based on customer eligibility. Learn more at Huntington.com slash standby cash. We're momentarily taking over your favorite music station to deliver an important message from Polliner Grapefruit Rather Radio. What favorites do you rock in your summer mix? Do you have tracks that sound like this? Or something like this? Or perhaps this? Now, regardless of what your music mix sounds like, just make sure you cue this up. Sound good? That's a refreshing grapefruit rattler. It's the perfect mashup of German lager and grapefruit, meant to be a part of your summer mix. And now, by following Polliner USA on Instagram, you'll have the chance to win summer music prizes. Just look for the Polliner Grapefruit Rattler music post and play the fun trivia game. Correct answers are how you enter. Cue the legal stuff. Polling USA, White Plains, New York. No purchase necessary. Open to U.S. residents 21 or older, excluding West Virginia. In 73021. Void where prohibited. See rockthemix.com for complete rules. Hashtag beer goals. We now return you to your regularly scheduled station. 